This is One Bills Live, presented by Kaleida Health. All right, it's a new week. It's a Monday. Welcome to One Bills Live. And then there were two. Two teams remain as the Super Bowl is set for Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas in two weeks' time. Chiefs and Niners. And uh, we'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. I think it probably behooves us to get to the Bills coaching news first and foremost. It's not breaking news necessarily, but kind of feel like we are a show of records, so we got to bring you up to speed a little bit here. And uh, yesterday, almost 24 hours ago, uh, the Bills put out a release naming Joe Brady their full-time offensive coordinator, removing the interim tag on Sunday after Brady took over as the interim coordinator midway through the season. We saw some changes to Buffalo's offense. The Bills ran the ball more. They increased their time of possession. Josh ran more and threw fewer interceptions. The question now, though, Steve, is who will be Buffalo's quarterback's coach? Because that would seemingly be a position that still needs to be filled. Yeah, it's interesting. You could uh, make a case, and I I don't know this. I don't think they want Brady to do both. No, you need another guy. You need another guy Uh, because the – Offensive coordinator's job is to stretch the starting quarterback to his, you know, to his limits and get more and more out of him and help him career, help him get better. I remember uh, back in the day, Jim Kelly, uh, Teddy Marchabroda always, Jim always felt like he was getting better, even as a six or eight year guy, or however long it was when he was with Teddy, five or six years, I guess. He felt like he was getting better and better and better under Ted's. Uh, coaching as an offensive coordinator that means you have to have a quarterback's coach who buffers the tension between hey you got to do more and here's what we're going to do to help you kind of thing um you, I, that's why former quarterbacks are really good at it they understand what a quarterback needs and they can it's about massaging that relationship i remember i had conversations with frank reich when he was the quarterback's coach in indianapolis with peyton uh he he said all he did was go went from Tom Moore to Peyton back and forth with information, game plans, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And he goes, I knew before I took the playlist, the game plan to Peyton, well, he's not going to like this, 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 you know. But unless he had it from Peyton that like, no, 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 he couldn't, you know, he couldn't make any changes. That's the quarterback's coach is kind of like – that. He's a political figure more than he is, you know what I mean, in the group dynamics. But ultimately it sounds like he's – the quarterback's advocate. Yes, and also he's the coordinator's advocate. Yeah. Because he's in those rooms too. He understands how they get to the those plays that they want to put in, you know. And so it's a it's a collaboration and the quarterback's coach is the grease that makes it run well, you know. Yeah. I wonder if coach McDermott waits to let some of the bigger names land places cuz obviously if, well, maybe not. I mean, you got – I'm sure he's got a short list. Most, co- most coaches have a ready-made short list to fill positions, knowing the movement that coaches have year over year in this league. It is, it is happening every single offseason. When you have six to eight head coach openings, invariably you're going to have assistants moving here, there, yeah. and everywhere. You're talking about 150 people changing jobs. And over 200 interviewing for those. Yeah, and and families moving. Well, right. 
the dynamics in your think about where the the Detroit Lions are today. They were a team that was thinking they were headed to the Super Bowl at halftime yesterday. Yeah. To now they're a bro- they're broken. You know, the OC is going to leave. You know, they got Aaron Glenn's going to get interviewed maybe yeah. for a head coaching job. Uh, they may lose both coordinators. They're going to be like a completely different getup and team than they were. You know. Three days ago, yep, um, that's what happens. That's the way it goes, and so you got to adjusting to that is as is as big an, an off season job as getting under the salary cap to me. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see the path the Bills take with respect to the open quarterback coaching job going forward. They also have a defensive line coach position open because Eric Washington accepted the defensive coordinator's job in Chicago with the Bears, a place where he has coached before in his career. Um, He will not be calling the plays, however. Matt Eberflus, the head coach, will continue to call plays on the defensive side of the ball, but that is another hole that the Bills have to fill on their coaching staff. So defensive line coach, quarterbacks coach, uh, just two of the positions open right now on the Bills staff. We should also mention that ESPN's Jeremy Fallow reported today that the Panthers, Carolina Panthers, interviewed Bill's assistant special teams coach Corey Harkey for their special teams coordinator job. Uh, So that happened. We know that last week Bobby Babich interviewed with the Giants. That happened last Wednesday. Now they have about five other candidates for the job. The other thing that's interesting there is, you know, the Giants had been running a 3-4 system. So presumably the last couple of years they've collected personnel to fit that system. Does a defensive coordinator, I mean, it's not a deal breaker, but does a defensive coordinator who has cut his teeth more in a 4-3 system make the transition more difficult? I would say yes, if they're going to stay with a 4-3, or if you're going to say, hey, no, we're sticking with this 3-4, do you want to coach our defense? You know, maybe that becomes not necessarily a roadblock, but it becomes something to definitely think about that's, for some of these candidates. That's the conversation during the interview process. What can you do with our personnel? Are you going to run a 4-3? What, what do you think? And, and he'll tell you what he thinks. Yes, I can run a 4-3 with the personnel you have or most of the personnel you have. We'll need a, we're going to need a, you know, a three technique if you go to a, you know, four, you know, if you go to a 4-3, that kind of stuff. There'll be a lot of that going on, but and every and even so, the Giants are a team that, that knows they got to be better on both sides of the ball. They're going to have to get better players, and if they're going to change out players anyway, they just get different new players instead of three, four new players. They're going to get four, three new players. Uh, certainly, there's guys who can play both ways, particularly down inside, but. That's what the interview process is going to be totally about. If you're going to make that switch to, to, to defensive coordinators, yeah. and they know they know that about Bob Babich anyway, before they even asked him to be interviewed. Packers were another team that requested to interview Babich. Don't know if that happened yet. Perhaps it did. And then late last week, we saw the Dolphins put in a request to interview Bobby Babich for their defensive coordinator job. That was left vacant by Vic Fangio, who then subsequently went to be the D.C. in Philadelphia under Nick Sirianni. So the coaching carousel spins and will continue to do so probably for the next couple of weeks here 
until the final two head coaching jobs are filled in Washington and Seattle. Those are the only two that remain open at this time. But let's discuss AFC-NFC championship games. Steve says it so much, some listener of ours put it on a T-shirt and sent it to us. You have to play well on that day. The Ravens did not hosted the AFC championship game and did not play their best. Their number one defense did play well enough to win the game, holding the Chiefs to 17 points. I think it's the offense that really let them down. Turned the ball over not only at the goal line, but in their own end in the first half. Defense held, didn't give up points. uh, And turned it over in the end zone a second time when Lamar threw into triple coverage late in the game which pretty much sealed their fate. So Ravens, and and you know what else? The Ravens with some undisciplined penalties, personal foul penalties, the taunting penalty by Zay Flowers was foolish. The Chiefs had it right. And I'll say say what you want about Travis Kelsey baited that guy. Travis Kelsey is absolutely one of the smartest football players in the NFL. He absolutely is. And he knew this. the the Ravens are a team that likes that bully mentality. They like to... You know, when, the, when there's a pile and the whistles blow, the Ravens always keep pushing after the whistle. They're the ones who win that little final push at the end. They're always the ones. They're the ones who go ultra-aggressive and force the officials to make the, make the call. They're the ones there. And the Chiefs absolutely used it against them. They absolutely baited them into it and wouldn't back down and also wouldn't give them the edge. They, forget it. And the, the Ravens couldn't handle it. They absolutely blew a gasket a time or two and – Kelsey, you know, laughed in their face. He knew it. Yep. Uh, totally undisciplined. I mean, being being big and bad is is a part of the job description in the NFL. But when you think you're the biggest and the baddest always, and you're going to prove it, somebody's going to punch you in the mouth. And if they do, you got to take a punch once in a while. You can't. You don't punch back after the way. You don't do. There, you, you pick your spots. You there know. There's a common question that Sean McDermott asks draft prospects at the Combine. Would you rather be smart or would you rather be tough? If you had to choose, would you rather be known as a smart player or a tough player? And I think there's a lot in that answer, no matter how you slice it. And I think both can be right. But in these kinds of games, you have to be smart. you got to be smart. have to be smart. It's it's absolutely – Margins are too thin. Smart player, and I've said this a ton too, smart players absolutely get better year after year. They improve themselves. They, look, they have the ability to look at themselves, have a sense of self-awareness, and they get better. They work on what they're not good at. That's what smart players do. Tough players, here's the, here's the thing with being a tough player. Here's why, and I get it, but here's why it's tough. It's hard to be a tough player. You got to prove it every week. You yeah. got to you got to punch and you got to get punched and you got you know you got to do that every week. Got to prove it every week. You never get one of those games where you're in you're in pro glide, right? You never get one of those games where you smooth. But you always have to be doing that. You always have to be proving it. And to prove how tough you are, you got to take some shots and then get up and keep playing. And it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And Quite frankly, the desire to keep doing that says how not smart you are. 
<laughs> you know, maybe if you're, if you're smart that. enough, listen, you, you, smart players always improve, always get better. Dumb guys are the same guy four years into their career as they were the day you drafted them. Yeah. It's just the way it is. And you can't, you have to be on the rise as a player. You've got to be adding to your game and maintaining a level of, you know, and, and that's why Baltimore, and while I admire them a lot, they are a really good football team and have a really good program. They have always been that under John Harbaugh. And I think that's – and his brother Jim's the same, kind of the same way. They cut, they're cut from that cloth. Yeah. you got to be a bully to be your best. And some teams use it against you because they're really smart. Yeah. They get you to step over that line. Um, I think that Steve Spagnolo, if he does not win assistant coach of the year, it's rigged. <laughs> um, this is a Chiefs team that I think you can safely argue in the Mahomes era had the least amount of talent to work with on the offensive side of the ball. They have two substandard offensive tackles. They really don't have, at the beginning of the season, they didn't have a number one option in the passing game outside of Kelsey at the receiver position. It developed into Rashi Rice, their second-round pick. They did not have a viable number two receiver. Um and Sky Moore has been a disappointment as a draft choice, second-round pick, if I remember right. And, I mean, they're just using spare parts, picking guys up off the scrap heap. You know, they brought McCole Hardman back at the end of the year. I mean, that's how bad it was on the offensive side of the ball. The defense, as great as Mahomes is, and he's great, and we'll get to that in a second, this defense is the reason the Chiefs are back in the Super Bowl. Number two in the league in points allowed, number two in the league overall, and they played better than the number one defense in football, the Baltimore Ravens, yesterday. Yeah, there's a lot in these two championship games yesterday, a lot of philosophical illustrations, you know. I mean, do you want – we've talked about it at length because Buffalo's got one of those guys, Josh, taking snaps, like Mahomes, like, like, you know, Lamar, you know, Joe Burrow, all those – he's an elite quarterback. And, and we've seen it in years past with Tom Brady. Tom Brady was thrown to Division II. Well, aside from Gronk, he was thrown to Division II athletes. Edelman yep. and all these other jokers that, you know, they couldn't even, they didn't even draft guys. Even if they got a number one wide receiver, they, they stunk. But Brady Randy, made, Randy Moss is the only exception. That's right. And they were like undefeated. Yeah, 19 and 1. Yeah. Right? So it's. It's that philosophy of how much do you give an elite quarterback because he can make anybody you give him pretty good. He can make it work. And then you throw those assets every place else so that the entire roster, you know, you can win other ways other than with offense and all that. Like the Chiefs are doing with Mahomes. They had Tyreek. They had all these jokers over there for a minute. And you couldn't score with them. But now they're saying, okay, now – Pat, you're making all the money. We're going to pay everybody else minimum wage, and you're going to have to carry it, bro. And he says, I, you know, I got it. Now they, they draft all these young defensive guys, and certainly they hit on them. But man, oh, man, that's what they did in, in Green Bay. Could, we say to the same thing. But you could tell in the second half, Lamar did not trust what he was looking at and started jumping around. And, yeah, he, he ran and used his legs when he wasn't certain what he was seeing, but – they're behind on the scoreboard, and he is eating clock by running the ball. 
and yeah. not even running to the sideline. He's running up the middle of the field. I'm just watching the clock. Tick, 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 tick. And, as I mean, they seven minutes left. I think they had the ball, and they're driving down the field, and they're taking their sweet time. And I'm like, look, I know it's a one-score game, but you'd like to score sooner rather than later here. Like, you know what I mean? And they made it yeah. – I think they made it 17-10. Or it was a two-score game. It was 17-7 at the time. And I was just like, wow. Uh, like, <laughs> urgency here. What are we doing? Like, come on. Uh, um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, Lamar is now 2-4 and four in his playoff career. And in those four losses, Steve, four total touchdowns, eight turnovers. Eight turnovers in his four – playoff losses and the Ravens in those four losses have averaged 10 and a half points per game 17 points or less in each of them they have never scored more than 17 and look I'll be the first to tell you it's harder to score points in the yeah. playoffs because the defenses are better it, they just are you're playing the best teams in the league but man like that was just a, ugh, a I mean that that offense and and here's the other thing Todd Monken, the offensive coordinator, who's been great this season and, and been a boon to that offense and to Lamar's production, why aren't they running the football? Like, Well, that's the thing. They threw it all over the yard. It's a, it was a one-score game for a while. Even, even so, with even all the throws points. they called, Lamar's getting hammered today around the country and by guys like you and me on, you know, on the radio and the TV and all that because here's the thing. There was a number of occasions, and, and Bills fans can relate to this because you see Josh do it once in a while, where Lamar had a chance. He just pull it down and run, get the first down. Let's go, keep it moving. And he didn't. He tried to make it throw. Tried to make the throw. Tried to make the throw. Tried to make the throw. And it's those kind of decisions that are they're part and parcel of being an elite quarterback. Brock Purdy won the game with his legs. How ironic is that? I mean, Brock Purdy, who is not that guy. He's a better overall decision maker, but though. he makes better decisions, and that's you know we everybody. I was telling Brownie this that this whole quarterback thing about who, how you evaluate these guys. It's a there's a lot in it in a quarterback's job. Most and first and foremost is decision making, and then do you have the ability to overcome maybe a bad decision or a missed opportunity someplace else, and have your abilities with your arm or your legs and athleticism overcome a bad decision. Josh certainly can overcome bad decisions. Lamar can certainly do it. Brock Purdy seems to make them all the time. We've seen other quarterbacks like that. Peyton Manning, you know, uh, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. They kind of make those decisions and can make their they can use their abilities to make their decisions the right one or mitigate a bad decision. And, you know, yesterday Lamar couldn't do it. He could not make enough good decisions. Yeah and then execute his way out of a bad one. I mean, we've and seen... And that's happened before. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Do, do we all remember the 101-yard interception yeah. return by Taron Johnson? I mean, the Ravens scored three points here in the 2020 playoffs. And with with 6,500 people in the stands. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a neutral site, and that's... Three points. Yeah, that's bad. And that was his MVP year. Right? No, I don't think so. Was it the year after? Yeah, it was the year after. Was his defend, he was defending his MVP. So, yeah, it's that's a, it's a, problem. a lot in that. There's, there's a, a lot I, in there's you got six games here in his playoff career and it's a small sample size, but it's not promising. I mean, 
Yesterday was no indication that he's learned from past lessons. I mean, that throw into triple coverage at the end of the game, it was god-awful. I know you're trying to make something happen, but man, just a terrible, terrible decision and basically sealed the game for the Chiefs. I know the Chiefs still had to kill the last six-plus minutes on the clock, but man, you can't give extra opportunities for Mahomes to either A, score points, or B, kill the game because he knows how to do that. It's just unfortunate. So meanwhile, that propels the Chiefs to their fourth Super Bowl in five years. They became the third team ever to reach four Super Bowls in a five-year span. Steve, your Bills, along with the 2014 to 2018 Patriots, the only other teams that can say they did that. <laughs> Mahomes will be the first quarterback ever to start four Super Bowls before age 30. And yeah, Brady, it, it was uh, his eighth year in the league. Mahomes did it in seven, correct? Yeah, I've got the rundown because people are already comparing Mahomes to Brady. First six years as a starting quarterback. Tom Brady, 70-24, and 24, one-loss record. Mahomes, 72-22. and 22. So he's got him there. Playoff record, Brady 12-2, Mahomes 14-3. AFC titles, Brady 3, Mahomes 4. Super Bowl rings, 3 for Brady, 2 for Mahomes. Again, this is in their first six years as a starter. And then touchdowns to interceptions, Mahomes blows Brady away. Brady, 167 touchdowns, 87 picks. Mahomes, 258 touchdowns, 69 picks. So he's got less interceptions and about a third more touchdown passes. It's Mario, 40% more touchdown passes. I read it. Some QB rating, 103.7 to 88.4. Yeah, these he's ca- killing him. These comparisons are going all over the joint now, and I kind of like some of them. Um, there's a different couple of different ways to look at the GOAT conversation, who's the greatest of all time at quarterback. And if you put these two guys in there, you think, okay, there's two ways to look at it. One, at their peak, how long did their peak last, and how great was it? And Mahomes, I mean, you're, you're looking at – Mahomes dwarfs anybody else in the playoffs, and at the peak of his peak, he's crushing it. He's 28. Crushing it. Steve, he's 28 years old. And he has already won his 14th career playoff game. He has already tied Terry Bradshaw, John Elway, and Peyton Manning for the third most playoff wins by a quarterback in NFL history. So his peak now is its a zenith. I mean, there's nobody that can make – I don't think there's anybody that can get close to it. Not in this current era. Right. And so – but – Brady, I mean, the guy played till he was 45, and his story at this point of Brady's career, his story has yet to be written even. Yeah. So Mahomes got a long way to go to get to that part of it. But his high, his, you can make the case that his high is higher than Brady ever got because he's doing it virtually. He's doing it more efficiently. <sighs> I mean, his numbers yeah. are dwarfing Brady in the first six years. Yeah. He's now – only Brady and Joe Montana have won more playoff games than Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes, I'm going to say it again, is 28 years old. He set a new record for most playoff wins by a quarterback in any six-year span in NFL history. So you take any six-year history of any quarterback ever, and he's got more playoff wins than anyone in a six-year stretch. Pick any six-year stretch of Tom Brady's career. He's got more playoff wins than him. I said it I said it after they beat the Bills last week, Steve. Patrick Mahomes 
is the Michael Jordan of the AFC. Oh yeah. And I, I the reason it rings with it, it resonates with me is because growing up a Knicks fan, I there was a very good Knicks team under Pat Riley that could not get past Michael Jordan. He was just too good, too good. And so at sometimes you could argue that. The, the cast he had around him wasn't even as good as what the Knicks had collectively, and it still didn't matter. And that's what you saw this year. This yeah. has got to be the weakest Chiefs offense we have seen since Mahomes became a starter, and it just doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. You can- and we should also say this, too. It's Mahomes and Andy Reid, which is a lot like Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson. Yeah, they also have, you know, and if, if you're doing that – you know, Michael Jordan said Travis Kelsey, Travis Scottie, Kelsey Pippen. Scottie Pippen. I mean, and I'll say this too: Kelsey has turned it on over the last three weeks. He was weeks. a monster yesterday. Uh, he was not, he was okay. He was good in the regular season. He's been elite in eleven for eleven yesterday. He's been elite in, in this playoff run, and those um, weren't all easy. And catches I, and you can see it too. I mean, we make the um, we make this stuff up all the time, not to make it up, but we make these analogies all the time. It seems like the Chiefs. You get these teams that are there all the time, and you just think, okay, they're and like the Bills are in this too, and some of some of these other teams are too. The regular season is like, listen, just get me to the tournament. And the Chiefs, man, they they really look like that offensive, not defensively. Defensively, they brought it every week, but offensively, it's like just get them in and let Pat figure it out with Kelsey, and that's really what it looked like yesterday in the championship game. They. Those two guys looked way different than they've looked at any point offensively this season. Oh, yeah. I mean, throw and throw out the Chiefs on the road in the playoffs for the first time. People were hoping that might change the dynamic. It didn't. Maybe. I mean, it might have changed it a little for them, but you can't tell. The results are the same. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they, they were a different team this year than they had been. And it's always a close game when the Bills play the Chiefs. I mean, they they just do that all the time, particularly and, in the playoffs. Yeah, and Steve talked about being, you know, the ultimate decision maker at quarterback, and being a consistent one. We saw Brock Purdy do that in the Niners game, but Mahomes now has gone six straight playoff starts without an interception. That is also the longest streak by a quarterback in NFL history. Playing the best defenses in football, including the number one defense yesterday. He wasn't, he wasn't lighting them up, but he wasn't making mistakes either. I, right. I don't know if I can, I can say I know of another quarterback since Brady than Mahomes who knows how to mitigate risk better than him. Brady was great at mitigating risk. So, too, is Patrick Mahomes. Um, he's just – you got to tip your hat to the guy. He's really, really good at it. When the chips are down, man, yeah. he does not I'll, screw it up. I'll say this too, and he doesn't screw it up. And yet, he also he's and and this is why he and Josh and Lamar and and Joe Burr and all they they make plays out of garbage. You know, there's a couple of times early in that game, Mahomes like, what are you gonna? And he kind of sidearms it. He's not even he's sidearms on a loop, and it's out there. The guy first down. You know, uh, under duress, he doesn't lose his ability to make a cool or make the right decision and, and execute it. Uh, some of these guys are like, they, they can't think and react at the same time. And uh, Mahomes does that as well as anybody you'll ever see. Yeah. Moving over to the NFC side, the Lions blow a 17-point lead, their largest blown lead in their playoff history. And uh, they've now lost 12 straight road playoff games. That extends the longest streak of all time. 
People thought they had it in the bag, including uh, Gardner Johnson, their safety, who after the Lions went up 20-7, to I don't know if you caught the two-second shot of him on the sideline waving goodbye to the Niners fans in the first half. Did you see that? I did not see that. Yeah. Well, Debo Samuel tweeted at him with the two-minute clip of him waving goodbye at 20-7, to and he said, someone check on my little bro. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get trolled. You're going to get trolled for that. Are you out of your mind waving goodbye to the home crowd when it's 20 to 7 in the first half? What is that? That is. Bad. You're a moron. Hey, you want to. That's bad decision making right there. <laughs> it's really bad. Are that's you bad decision making. It's that, 13 points, not 30. Yeah. He's nuts. Yeah. That. And this play that we saw, the, the play off the face mask, that whenever you get a play, a game like this, we've said it. I mean, we talked about. I'll be a little lucky. I've talked about comebacks like for 35 years, ever since the great comeback here in Buffalo against the Oilers and others that have happened. It comes up all the time. In order for that to happen, one team has got to drop and the other team's got to elevate, and then you've got to get those quirky plays. That one off the face mask for the Lions that actually really changed the entire game was huge. And, you know, that's that's what it takes yeah. to come back from 17 in the second half of a playoff game against a really good football team in the Lions. But, pfft. yeah, that's – You feel bad for them. And we don't have time right now because we do have to get to break here and we'll get our topic of discussion out to you when we return as well. But we've got to talk about those fourth-down decisions by Dan Campbell. Obviously, he's coming under a lot of fire for them. I partially agree with him, and I partially disagree with him. We'll, we'll hear what Steve has to say about those decisions as well when we return. Here on One Bills Live, presented by Collada Health, it's Buffalo Bills Radio. Back here on One Bills Live on a Monday after the AFC and NFC Championship games have determined the two Super Bowl participants. We do have a Bills topic of discussion for you today, though, at 803-0550-1888-550-2550. What stamp do you expect offensive coordinator Joe Brady to put on the Bills offense heading into next season? You can let us know. Open lines for you, 803-0550-1888-550-2550, the number to get on board if you can't call. Hit us up on the tweet sheet at One Bills Live. Just putting a bow on the AFC NFC Championship game discussion. Obviously, Dan Campbell's come under enormous fire for some of his fourth down decisions in the second half of that football game. And I think there are th- things to argue in his favor and things to argue against some of the decisions that he made. Number one, this is how he has been since he took over the Lions. They go for it more than any other football team on fourth down, and it's one of the main reasons they are in the position they were yesterday, uh, going 12-5 and and getting to the NFC title game. It has worked very much in their favor. I think one of the main reasons he has done that is his defense is not good at stopping people. It's improved somewhat, but they still have trouble stopping opponents. They've had to rely upon their offense, and people would say in that situation that would behoove you all the more to go for it on fourth down so you can stay on the field longer and keep your defense, which can be a little leaky at times, from being on the field more. So I get all of that and the premise for being aggressive that way. As a matter of fact, fourth and two in the third quarter 
seven minutes left in the third. I have no problem with them going for it there. Um, but as Steve says, you have to execute. They did not execute. They dropped the ball. Now, the one fourth down that I do have a bit of an issue with is fourth and three in the, th- in the fourth quarter with seven and a half minutes left. It's fourth and three. That's a little bit harder than fourth and one, fourth and two. Doesn't have as high a probability rate. And I, not for a second do I believe that Dan Campbell subscribes to live in-game probability. Like, for me, I think he goes with his gut. I don't think he contacts right. somebody up in the booth like Sean McDermott does yeah. and says, what's our live in-game win probability right now on this fourth and three? It might be – It might have. Some, he might not have to ask for it. They may give it to him out of, out of just saying that they do it every yeah. time. Whether he listens or not is another story. I, I'm totally on board with Dan Campbell and those choices, all of them, because here's why. And we saw the results. He gave it to his players to win on the field, and you said it. A drop pass, a doink off a face mask right. for a reception. Uh, those kind of plays happen, but it was on the players in the game to do it. He wasn't coaching, so his players wouldn't make a mistake. And that's – you can't – you know, that's, that's how you win. Um, and certainly you can point and say, well, that's how you lose. Well, yeah, that <laughs> – those guys, it was easy. A couple of those were just absolute bonehead drops. I mean, one of them, the one we've seen there on the fourth and two, it, yeah, it would have been a Reynolds. nice catch, no question, and Goff should have put it right on his body. I get it. you got to catch it. And the same thing with the Bills against the Chiefs. you got to catch it. Yeah, three deep you gotta, balls. you got to do it, man. And, and I love a coach, and I think most players respond to, and I think it, there's an environment in the, in the league where put it in, give your players a chance to win it. Don't, right. don't line up. Eight yards deep on a third and four, right? As a defense, you know, get up on them and make them play. You got to do that stuff. And I think in this fourth, and I'll say this too. Yeah, you can say what you want about the fourth down. They sh- they might have, should have. You're taking it for granted that the guy makes the kicks. Yeah, you know, but it's a 48 yarder. This was their practice squad kicker who got brought up on the roster after they released Riley Patterson, who was not consistent enough. Now, Badgley's kicked in the league, kicked for a long time for the Chargers, been a successful kicker. And this season, he is 9 for 11 on kicks between 40 and 49 yards. Granted, more of them have probably taken place indoors at Ford Field, not on grass, you know, in January. But here's the part, here's the part, like, the, the people that subscribe to the analytics, no matter what, say, okay, your defense isn't stopping anybody. That's more of a reason to go for it. And I would say in most cases, yes. But with 735 left, 48-yard field goal on the table for you to take advantage of to tie the game at 27, knowing you're probably only getting – Two more possessions, max, in the game. This is an opportunity to score points. We, we, we haven't scored any in the second half yet. So I say I probably would have kicked it there to at least tie the game. I know my defense is struggling, so let me get points on the board. And, so that way, even yeah. if my defense gives up a touchdown, I'm still in a one-score game. Yeah, and here's maybe the, with only one more possession right. left for and my I'll offense say, to go win it. I'll say this too, and one of the things that we rarely think about, and it just occurred to me, 
because as the game played out, it became evident. So they they fourth down. It's a big down. You got to get it offensively. But you know what? It's a big down for the other team too. Yeah. They get that stop. Their offense says, "Let's go," and they they plowed well, that's right what they down did. the field. They went five plays and in plowed the end zone. them right down the field because now they had because you gave them the momentum with the missed opportunity. Yeah. So it's a it's also that side of the sword that cuts deep as well because not only are you giving them the field position that they wouldn't they would not have had if you kicked the field goal and put them cut kicked a touchback they would have gotten it on the twenty five. You also give them the fact that they're winning now. And they got the momentum. And look, and you you know. can make the argument that a missed field goal will give them every bit the same amount of momentum. But if you make the field goal, at least you have a tie game. And if your defense is still unable to stop them, you're in a one-score game, not a 10-point game, a miss- which is what ended up happening. A missed field game. goal isn't as emotionally shifting as a fourth down stop. It was a 10-point game with three minutes left. The game's over. It's over. Like, with three minutes left, you're down 10. You're not getting the ball twice unless you right. get a miraculous onside kick, which is at its lowest percentage of success rate that it's ever been. Right. So, yeah, to at me. At that point, you got to kind of go for it. There, I, Look, and I'm, I'm all for going for it on fourth down. Don't get me wrong. And early in the game, I'm a big proponent of that. I've seen the value of it, believe me. But at the end of that game, I think you really – if. And I don't know if analytics people do this for these respective clubs or not. Maybe they do, and I'm just blind to it. But I'd like to think that in addition to win probability on a given down and distance live in-game, they should also give how many possessions left probability are you going to have because that should have an impact on your decision too. If I'm only getting the ball one more time, two max, and my chances of getting two possessions – after this possession we have right now is like 20%, I'm taking the points. Yeah. When you, yes. yes. We, need a, we need a possessions left that's likelihood all, model. That's all baked into the win probability. That's all baked in there. And that's, you know, listen, I, I would, I'd be shocked if he didn't know all of that stuff. I hope he did. I'm sure he did. And, he, he listen. It's not how he wants to coach. It's not how he wants his players that, to play. Yeah, but that's fine. And I get it. I don't I, agree I, with I, it. I don't either. Not <laughs> when it gets to the point where it's, you know, mathematical. And you know, there you you gave them the ball. All it is now, they're two first downs away from putting a game away. Yeah, and without scoring, they're two first downs away from scoring without. Yeah. And that's the way it was in the Chiefs game. Raiders, uh, the Ravens got it to within a touchdown, but it was so late in the game, the Chiefs were one first down away, and they had two timeouts. It was two and a half minutes left. Ravens had to use both their timeouts, and the Chiefs, all they needed was a first down, and that's when they went over the top to Valdez Scantling, game over. Yeah. Kneel down three times, you lose. That's where you're at. You, get, you put that carrot out there in front of an offense and say, listen, you get one first down here and you win. You have to score, you have, and you, got, you, know, you get three downs to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, that, that's where you start doing the math. They just, there's not enough time. I mean, you're coming down to a, an onside kick in a championship game. you got no shot. Not in this day and age. It's all different now. It's all different. You can't get an onside kick now unless somebody makes a – idiotic catastrophic mistake 
right? Oh yeah. And it was the and it was you know they did. I mean they didn't they they just ran out of time, ran out of possessions. Yeah, I, I think how many possessions you have left analytic live in game model needs to be right there with the fourth down win probability model. Once you get inside ten minutes left, you got to do it. Right. And maybe some teams do do it, and I'm just naive to that. But you got to count the possessions you're probably going to have left in addition to the fourth down win probability. Uh, let's go to the phones, though, and to Mitchell in Buffalo. What's up, Mitchell? How are you doing, Nick? Good. You guys hear me? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I'm, now I'm not okay, here. Okay, we're not here. We're sorry, Mitchell. I... Cut you loose there. Let's go to Mark in West Seneca. What do you, what, what do you got for us, Mark? Hey, guys. I had a call today. Uh, I'm going to preface my, my call today with I am not a Lamar fan. Um, and I just heard a stat on ESPN not too long ago. In that game, he uh, 82% of the offensive play calls were drop back passes. They only attempted to run the ball six times yeah, with running backs. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what that tells me is this guy that the national media wants to promote every single day as an elite quarterback in the same group as who the elites, the elites are, who we know they are, um, wasn't able to get it done. He had the ball in his hands constantly to either throw it or run it, and he could not get it done. Lamar has continually showed us who he is in the playoffs, and if, and he did 10 points, he scored 10 points on his home field in the conference championship game, okay? When Josh scored 10 points against Cincinnati at home in a divisional playoff game, they cut his pedestal down so fast, he hit the ground flying. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see uh, if they criticize Lamar for his play or if they make excuses every day as to why they were not successful. So um, I believe he's a running back who plays quarterback, great athlete, no doubt about it. He's amazing with the ball in his hands. He is not a quarterback. He is not a guy who's going to read defenses and put the ball where it needs to be. So that's all I had to say about that. And then quickly on Joe Brady, uh, I think Joe's going to make it a what he started to show quite a bit, a lot of motion. A lot of different personnel packages with guys being put in positions that they typically have not been. And I think he's going to do a lot to scheme guys open a lot more than we've seen in quite a while. Have a great day, guys. All right. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate the input there. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if I would go as far as Mark did, but I think Lamar has kind of demonstrated some of the limitations that opposing defenses yeah. have taken advantage. Now, his offensive coordinator didn't help him. Yesterday, in my estimation, having him drop back on 82% of the plays, they got to run the ball more. I, now, And Kansas City is not great at stopping the run. Now, they were very good at stopping the Bills running the football. Traditional running, I'm talking about, not Josh runs, you know, off scrambles and stuff. But James Cook was kind of kept under wraps two weeks ago. They did a good job in the run front there. Maybe that dissuaded Todd Monken from going that route yesterday. But, man, you're in a tight game what was it, 17-7. It's a 10-point game, you know, before the half. And you've had plenty of time to run the football. They chose not to do it. I was surprised. Yeah, the, the Chiefs 
the weakness of the Chiefs' defense has been the run game. I mean, the Bills took advantage of it. Even without Josh's running, they, the Bills rushed for 112 yards on, 20, on 33 carries. And they had a 6.85 a clip. Ravens uh, ran it 16 times yesterday, and that's counting yeah. counting Lamar scrambles. I don't know. I don't get that. I don't get that approach. And and I and you know to Mark's point, yes, Lamar is getting hammered today for the way he played yesterday, uh, as you would expect. Uh, and he he could have played out. He could have played great, and they lost, and he'd still get hammered. That's the way life is these days. But he didn't play his best game. They didn't look good doing it. Offensively, uh, it was puzzling. Their game plan, like you said, they led the league in rushing and didn't rush. So I, I, I don't get that. That's not, I don't know if that's Lamar, though. Uh, I think that has more to do with the play selection. 82% is a big number. Yeah. we got to take a break here. When we come back, more of your phone calls. We've also got NFL on CBS sideline reporter Evan Washburn, who was at that Ravens-Chiefs game yesterday, coming up in hour number two of the show. So be sure to stay tuned for that. All coming your way here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. All right, back here on One Bills Live. Going to squeeze in a couple of phone calls here before the top of the hour. We go to Kevin in Hamburg first. What do you got for us, Kevin? Hi, how you doing? Good. Yeah, good. Um, I want to tell you, I want to share a fun fact about the Niners and Super Bowl history or franchise history. How's that? Sure, sure, sure. Okay, if the Niners are in their eighth Super Bowl of all time, right? Yep. Okay. Um, if they win, they'll be tied with the Steelers, yep. six and two all time. Of course, four in the seventies with Landry or Mean Joe Green and them, and of course two with Ben Roethlisberger. And of course, the three losses or the two losses to, to um, Dallas and the Packers. Yep. But if they lose, they'll be tied with another franchise, the Dallas Cowboys, at five and three. You know, the two wins with Tom Landry, two with Jimmy, and then one with Barry Switzer. And I think that's ironic that their win or lose will be tied with two franchises that are legendary for the two of the best Super Bowls in history: Super Bowl ten and thirteen, which of course the Steelers won. Barely. Yeah. So I wanted to share that fun fact with you. Yeah, thanks for doing that, Kevin. It's an interesting history for the Niners. Um, one of the more successful franchises in getting there and one of the more successful franchises in winning the thing. Um, there is no denying that whatsoever. And if they do win, you're right. They will tie the Steelers for most Super Bowl titles in league history. To Rich in Tonawanda next. What's up, Rich? Hello. Hi, guys. I wanted uh, to... Uh maybe explain my theory on why they didn't try an onside kick at the end of that game with about two minutes left. To me, it's, they're basically, they have a chance of getting the ball. If they fail, they have the same opportunity. They have to stop the other team in three downs. Yeah. Either they kick it, to the end zone, and they have three chances to stop them or the game's over. And the same thing applies if they try an onside right. kick. Of course, of course, it's very limited, their chances. But to me, the only thing they're sacrificing is about 25 yards of field position. And either way, they only if the other team, if they get a first down, the game's over, either which way. 
Right. But at least, at least if you try an onside kick, you have a chance. Yeah, you know? I wasn't. I wasn't arguing the decision to to go with the onside kick. I was saying the chances are very low, which they are. Um, right. And that's what you're reduced to was the point I was trying to make by not kicking the field goal with seven and a half minutes left on the fourth and three. I, I, I was just yeah, of the opinion goal. that late in the game, knowing you're probably only going to get the ball one more time, maybe two if you're lucky. And as it turned out, they only got it one more time. Um, you got to take the points there, tie the game, knowing your defense is not stopping them. You, you at least – if you give up a touchdown on the ensuing possession, it's still a one-score game, and you have the possession to go tie it or win it with a touchdown and a two-point conversion. Uh, the way I've seen it is the, the, the onside kick is a direct result of not kicking the field goal because then... Because you're forced to. You're, you're, yeah, you had to then because of everything that happened. Uh, if you kick the field goal, you still get the same and then kick it deep. Like you said, you gain the field position... San Francisco is, you know, they got to play, you know, and he gives you a chance. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, Brownie was saying something different than I think you thought he was saying. Yeah, and it's and the and the percentages are even lower now. So the recovery rate up until 2018, before they moved the kickoff line, yeah, was 13 and a half percent. That's not bad, but now since then, 5.6 percent. It is really low. So and I'll and I'll say this too that the five point six it happens because team you can't surprise you know the only time you get is when you surprise onside now right um, like Sean Payton in the second half of the Super Bowl right. in twenty twelve for example that's right you do it as a surprise when it's not really expected not like it was yesterday with the Detroit. Yeah, San Francisco game. Break time for us here when we come back. NFL on CBS sideline reporter Evan Washburn, who was sidelines yesterday for Ravens-Chiefs AFC title game. We'll catch up with him, get some of his thoughts from his vantage point yesterday here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Presented by Kaleida Health. All right, here we are, hour number two, Chris Brown, Steve Tasker on a Monday. And pleased to welcome in now NFL on CBS sideline reporter Evan Washburn, hard at work yesterday at the AFC title game. Won, as we know, by the Chiefs, who are headed back to yet another Super Bowl after Lamar Jackson and the Ravens kind of committed some costly mistakes down the stretch there. There was some questionable play calling by a certain offensive coordinator as well. We can get into all of that with Evan, but uh, Evan, the first one I want to pitch to you is the thing that I pitched after uh, the Chiefs dispatched to the Bills in the divisional round. This is not just a Bills problem in the AFC getting past Patrick Mahomes, who I compared uh, to Michael Jordan. He is the Michael Jordan of the AFC. You cannot beat the guy 
when the chips are down. Uh, what do you think of that analogy? Too early in his career? Or, I mean, because he's, I mean, he's certainly proving it supremely difficult to get past this guy in the playoffs on the AFC side of things. No, Chris, I think it works, but I'll keep it in football. I mean, to me, he's, he's Tom Brady 2.0. This is New England 2.0. They find ways to win when they're not at their best. They are able to, or he, Mahomes, that is, is able to elevate teams that maybe don't have the personnel of previous years. They have a defense this year that I know you guys know is, is special. We saw that on display yesterday and how they frustrated Lamar and company. But I know it's reckless. It's probably prisoner of the moment. But after seeing what Mahomes has done this year, if he can close this out in Vegas, he is very much on his way to, in my mind, supplanting Brady in that, what do you call it, goat position, one position, whatever it might be. What seemed like a crazy thing to say just two seasons ago, maybe, now to me is starting to feel more realistic. Yes. Because the way he's won with this team. That's right. Six straight AFC you know, championship games uh, headed to his fourth Super Bowl. Uh, he... Uh, also, and you think of this stretch of six years where he's put together such enormous numbers. And I was looking at, there's a couple of ways to look at this goat conversation between Pat Mahomes and, and Tom Brady and all of the stuff that goes on. Certainly, I don't know that Tom Brady ever reached a zenith like the one we're seeing from Mahomes, um, where he's just this, got these individual numbers that are just eye popping. Now, certainly, Brady won, a, won game after game after game, no question about it. But to have the kind of numbers that Mahomes is having offensively throughout these last four, five, six years, uh, Brady really never reached those heights statistically. And then, but if you look at the other side of it, Brady, man, he, six years or seven years into his career, his story had yet to be written. It was still going to go way beyond, right? So I think they're two different guys, both of which are in the same conversation. It's a great point, Stephen, and the way I've thought about it, I think Mahomes is so far ahead of Brady right now yeah. at this point in his career as to where Brady was at this point in his career. And I'm sure you could match the numbers up, and we've all seen those full screens. But he's just more physically gifted. He's able to do things as a quarterback that Brady couldn't do at this point. The key for Patrick will be, does he have that second, and you could argue third act that Tom had? And that was rooted in Tom's ability to sustain his health late into his 30s and then early 40s. And we saw that with his commitments, pliability, and diet, and health, and all those things. We're starting to see Mahomes drop sort of Easter eggs that he's thinking about that. He references Tom in a lot of ways. But the commitment necessary physically that he's going to face, not this year or next year, or even in the next couple of years, he's still only 28 years old. But when he hits 34, 35, will he be able to do what Tom did which was really elevate his game, but if nothing else, just remain available for 17 weeks to pile up the wins, to pile up the numbers, and most importantly, get those Super Bowls. That's where it'll get interesting because right now, uh, Patrick is, is way ahead of Tom in terms of his ability to produce and play the quarterback position at an elite level as opposed to where Tom was at this point in his career. And taking that, to the coaching sidelines, you know, I know Andy Reid is only looking for, what is this, is be his third Super Bowl title if he yeah. can win it. Uh, so he still would only have half the number of Belichick. I got to tell you, though, you take out Mahomes' record, 
from Andy Reid's one-loss record, and you take Brady's one-loss record away from Belichick, Andy Reid blows Bill Belichick out of the water in terms of one-loss record, conference titles, all of that stuff. Um, How much further does Andy have to go before he ventures into those waters and gets put up with those names like Shula and Belichick? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting conversation, Chris. I, I would say, look, if he wins this one this year and so he picks up his third, I think he puts himself in that group or hovering around whatever proverbial group you have. I, I find the Reed-Belichick discussion in terms of kind of overall coaching resume much different than the Mahomes-Brady one. And, and I'm sure, again, as you laid out, there's ways you could make those points. I just look at Bill, once he stepped foot in New England, to what he left, obviously, this year as something that there's no chance for Reed at this point in his career to replicate. Yeah, I, I, the, it's the length of production and, and 10 Super Bowls with the one team. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's kind of similar to the Brady yeah, the Mahomes thing right you now. You know, it's just the consistency, the level of consistency. Yeah. And, and it's not to say Reed couldn't do it, but it's just he's behind the eight ball when it comes to where he is in his career once he, yeah. he got this quarterback named Mahomes. Give us a little insight as what your observations were about the AFC Championship game yesterday, Lamar, uh, Patrick, um, and the way that game unfolded. So we've obviously touched on Mahomes and, and what they did was was impressive, really defensively, what Steve Spagnolo, he won't get enough credit. So every time I'm doing one of these, and I'm sure you guys have seen it too, I think we need to mention how he's put his stamp on this defense, how Brett Veach has built this defense through the draft. But the takeaway has to be what happened to the Ravens, specifically offensively, because I think they played well enough defensively to win this game. And Steve, I know you've obviously played at the highest level, but you've been in my position where you're on the sideline and you, you try to pick up on things, but you also don't want to be overly dramatic or, or think something is bigger than it is. And now it's easy for me to say this, but the first play of the game offensively for the Ravens, there was an odd feel to it. I know it was a handoff, I think, to Justice Hill. It wasn't so much that there wasn't production on the play, but the speed in which it unfolded, the, there just seemed to be something off. And then you kind of felt that that first drive. And in the moment, I go, oh, that wasn't a great way to start the game. That's obvious. It was three and out. But then outside of the, the big play to, to Zay down, down the field, which I thought was going to open things up, it just felt like throughout the game, and I know there's been plenty of discussion about play calling, and, and I'm happy to get into that too, but it just felt like a game where – they were gripping it so tight offensively. And, and for the first time all, all season, it felt like they were didn't want to make a mistake. So that impacted their decisions, and then it kind of all trickled down from there. So it was really, Steve, one of those ones, and Chris, you've probably been on sidelines too before, you, you, you kind of felt it in the moment. You're like, something's off here. You felt it early, and then they never really recovered. Yeah, and I know that Todd Monken's come under fire for his choice to go pass heavy in this game, which – You know, if you think about it, if there was one perceived soft underbelly of this Chiefs defense, it's the fact that they were 18th against the run this year and 24th in yards per carry average against. I mean, they weren't juggernauts in that one category. I know they did a good job of plugging up the run against the Bills in the divisional playoff, and maybe that played on Todd Monken's game-planning decisions when he's watching that tape, you know, in the week leading up to the game. But 
I only really remember, and this is just off the top of my head, maybe two designed runs for Lamar in the game. He has eight total carries, so that means six scrambles. And even with those six scrambles, they only ran it 16 times. That that seems like a surprisingly low number for a Ravens team that, yes, threw the ball more this year under Monken, but not to this degree, right? So I've spent, as I'm sure plenty of people that covered the game or, or interested in the game, a lot of time over the last whatever it's been, 12 hours, close to 24 hours, thinking about, okay, how did this unfold this way? What's the why here? Because we haven't heard from from Todd. And and I, I really – I believe he's you know, one of the best coordinators in the game this season. What he did with this offense, with this passing game, yeah. deserves some credit. So I'm not going to say based off of one performance from his unit – that it's an indictment on on the way he kind of handled things. The only thing I can think of as to the why, and it goes back to Mahomes, and, and we saw this with Brady at, at their peak. And any, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen it with Josh and, and the Bills when they're humming. It impacts your decision, and I think it takes you out of your character or your identity offensively because you think you have to chase what Mahomes and that offense is going to do on the other side. Where that runs into an issue when it comes to the game yesterday, they weren't scoring. Mahomes, while he played well, I thought he, he kind of dictated the terms of that game. He played with immense poise and, and timing, and then he and Kelsey did their thing. They didn't score in the second half. I mean, the Ravens' defense, again, did everything they needed to do. So while I think it could have impacted the decision to have more of a drop-back passing game, thinking you got to go back and forth to Mahomes with Mahomes, the – the score disparity and the scoring just doesn't match up with that. So it, it, it's puzzling for sure. What do you think going forward, the Kansas City Chiefs looking you know, down the barrel at San Francisco in, in Vegas? Uh, certainly, you know, these two teams met just a few years ago, same two head coaches, um, right? What, what's that, what bearing does that have coming into this one, and how do you think this game will be different than the one we saw? I don't think it has, Steve, any bearing on the game outside of for Kyle Shanahan. And similar, he almost, I think of him as a version of Lamar on the sideline. All he needs is a Super Bowl. All Kyle Shanahan needs to sort of put a stamp on him being one of the best doing it right now. Because everybody loves his scheme. You see the production, what he's done with Brock Purdy, really what he's done with anybody who's been under center or playing any position in that offense and how he's along with John Lynch, built out that organization and that culture, he needs a Super Bowl. And he's been in moments where he's had an opportunity. They were up on this team late in Miami a few years ago. Granted, it would have been as a coordinator in Atlanta, but he's got that on his resume, similar to Lamar. I mean, all Lamar needs right now is a Super Bowl. That pressure, that weight, that to me is something that you can take from the 2019 meeting as something that will be a storyline in this one. Outside of that, Two very different teams. Obviously, Kansas City's got a lot of their key pieces. Uh, San Francisco outside of Kittle and Debo and a couple other guys, not so much. Uh, but after Sunday, and I had seen Kansas City early in the year when they were kind of building out this defense, and then what we saw yesterday against the Ravens, and I'll mention his name again, what Spagnolo's done, I can't wait to see that matchup. The high-octane machine, the offense that is San Francisco – matched up with what the Chiefs have built defensively. To me, as much as this will be about the quarterbacks and Mahomes, that to me is worth the price of admission right there. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what Kyle Shanahan does 
knowing that his team, offensively anyway, has gotten off to two very slow starts in each of their two playoff games, and that's not a game you want to play with Patrick Mahomes on the other sideline. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what he comes up with to get his team off to a better start. Now, look, Purdy's been great. I mean, in eight of the ten drives that his team has been down, he's put points on the board. He's been fantastic. He plays better when they're behind, it seems. Um, but I can't imagine that's a game that Shanahan wants to play in the biggest game of the year. No, I would agree. But, man, look at what they did in the start of the third quarter. I mean, they, they erased 17 points. Granted, I think the Lions' defense is nothing in comparison to Kansas City. But the way that they can score quickly and – I also think about the fact, and you guys both know this, Steve, to the highest degree, Super Bowls are long, man. They're long games. They're game. They're like three games within a game, not just because the extended breaks and halftime and all that stuff. They're, everything just feels like there's more time to have different swings and momentum. So while I agree a fast start, it would be, would be important for Shanahan and the Niners also to kind of put away maybe some of that anxiety and stress of, of previous history of failures, but uh, I I think they've shown they can quickly shift and flip a script of a game. Yeah, no question. And and I think if you look at the two defenses, I mean, as much as the 49ers have leaned on that defense, they got a stellar roster back there. It's almost like this Chiefs defense is really the engine about this game, right? I mean, Brock Purdy's going to be a force. Can he be a force? Can he get it to all the weapons that they need to? Can they put a blanket over Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey? Uh, What will be their philosophy? What kind of game plan, you know, is usually say, hey, well, if we take away the run, then do whatever we want. Or if you take away this guy, you can do whatever you want. The Niners present too many problems to make generalized statements about what your defensive game plan would be. What are your thoughts about where Kansas City begins? Absolutely. And you guys touched on it, and it's one of the things that's frustrating fans here in Baltimore, that they did show vulnerability against the run, and it didn't appear that the Ravens looked to exploit that yesterday. I don't think that'll be the situation that Kyle Shanahan has any uh, issue trying to exploit. And I think everything – with San Francisco starts with McCaffrey. I mean, I, I don't have a vote. We did some CBS sports.com voting for awards. He was my offensive player of the year, uh, especially because it sometimes feels like you need to go away from whoever won MVP for that award. I just think his overall production and his importance to what they do there, I think it starts with him. So if you're Kansas City, you have to be at your best against the run and slowing down McCaffrey because everything seems to hinge off of that and once they get that thing, and he doesn't, the, the, the beauty of San Francisco's system too is they don't get frustrated if he's going at one, two, three yards a clip for the first, because he'll pop. It, it, he, they are so, I don't want to say stubborn because it's a positive. I mean, they, they're determined to continue to feed him the ball because they know, and he's proven it, he did it yesterday, he'll have one that'll pop for 30 or 40 yards at some point. And then again, whether it's Debo or the things they do with Ayuk or Kittle, um, everything kind of starts there. So if you're Kansas City, priority number one, it sounds basic, but is find a way to limit McCaffrey in the run game, in his specific area of the run game, as, as much and as often as you can. All right, Evan, we know the NFL on CBS will have Super Bowl 58 in a couple of weeks here from Las Vegas. Are you on assignment? Where 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 should we expect to see you? 
I will be on the 49ers sideline for this game with the with the crew, with Jim, Tony, Tracy, Jay, and Gene. I, I like that we have uh, as deep a roster as you'll get for for these big games, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it it was it was interesting to kind of play out the potential matchups that we could have, whether it was going to be a Baltimore Detroit game or a Kansas City Detroit, all the all the versions, but. As often is the case, once the the two teams are set, you kind of feel like, man, all right, we got a big game. This is a good one. Look, it's always a big game yeah. once you hit this spot. But because of the history, because as you and I or the three of us are breaking this one down, there's a lot to chew on. So I think it'll be good, and and I'm, I'm curious to see how how Vegas uh, presents as uh, as right. a stage for this because it's a big yeah. event town, and there's no yeah, bigger right. event. Absolutely. It'll be fun to watch. Have fun. When do you guys, you guys head out uh, like this next weekend uh, during the Pro Bowl stuff and get there and then yeah, I know I mean, it's all hands this, on deck. David, yeah, it's, it's, it, it makes for a long week because as you know, for most of these deals, we'll fly in Friday and you're in the town of the game Friday, Saturday and then game Sunday and then you're out. So it's very much kind of get in, get your work done and, and hit the road. But we'll get in Sunday, basically a week out from the game and you're there for a lot of the festivities, and that part's cool. And then you do meet – like everything's drawn out during Super Week. And the, the teams face it. Again, you, you, you lived it. But it's – it's this will be my fourth – yeah, my fourth Super Bowl at CBS. And I've learned you really do – like the players say, you have to pace yourself because yeah. you can get to Thursday and think – I don't have anything left. Like I'm staying up too late, getting up too early. It, it's it's a lot. So uh, I feel like a vet at this point. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. And the one thing you won't have to worry about is weather. So uh, enjoy That's that uh, being in Allegiant Stadium there. Have a blast out there in Vegas. Uh, we'll catch up with you down the line here in the offseason. Evan, thanks for thanks, the time. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate it. You got it, guys. Good to be with you. All right. That's Evan Washburn, NFL on CBS sideline reporter. As you heard right there, he will be on the Niners sideline for Super Bowl 58. Cool gig. An assignment this guy to my left's done before. I had the Niners sideline in New Orleans. Yeah, when uh, the lights went out. Yeah, when the light, against uh, Baltimore. So we almost had a repeat of that Super Bowl. Mm. Uh, I'm pretty sure the lights would stay on in Allegiant. But, um, yeah, it's just, you get to a point in history uh, and you get to a certain, I don't know, mile marker in your life, and some of these Super Bowls start to, you know, you start to revisit them. Yeah. You know? That is crazy. I hadn't thought of that because people were like, oh, yeah, Niners, Chiefs, that happened four years ago. And I, di- I, I didn't really give it much thought har- to the fact. the Harbaugh Bowl. Yeah, I hadn't really given much thought to the fact that, yeah, you know what? The Niners and the Ravens tangled not too long ago either. 20, what mm-hmm. was that, 2013, 14, uh, somewhere in there? 2014, Ten years ago. I think, yeah. 20, yeah. Ten years ago. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, 803-0550-1888-550-2550, the number to get on board. We do have a Bills topic of discussion for you, in case you were wondering. Now that uh, Joe Brady has been named offensive coordinator full-time, what stamp do you expect him to put on the Bills' offense this coming fall? I think we would all agree that taking over midseason, you're kind of triaging the offense. You're working with a system that you already have in place, which may not be everything that you would have done offensively as a play caller, but you're working with the tools that are in the toolbox you're handed, um, both on the field and in the playbook. So how much does he tweak things uh, to his 
liking, I guess, is the question we've got on the table for you at 803-0550, the numbers to get on board. Um, I don't know about you, Steve. I'm not anticipating dramatic changes here. I would anticipate, just for continuity's sake, that even though plays might change, that terminology remains largely the same right. uh, to benefit the continuity there. But I, I, I do think we saw enough changes in the time that he took over with pre-snap motion, with getting the ball to Cook, not only as on handoffs but on throws out of the backfield as well, um, and greater usage of Khalil Shakir and Dalton Kincaid that we should expect maybe even some some more notable changes here with a full off season to kind of yeah. adjust and arrange things as he sees fit. Yeah, we we probably won't notice any huge changes uh, as much as the players will notice. Different types of calls, different words, additions in the vocabulary, subtractions from the vocabulary. You know, just an evolution. And uh it will be excel that evolution, I think you're right, it will be accelerated by the fact they've got a different guy creating it all and, and putting it into place. And uh and also they they know some things about some of the personnel on their offensive side way more than they did when Joe Brady first took over and, and in large measure due to his play calling. So I think that'll continue. And you're right. I, I think the motion it's not going over the I don't think it's going anywhere for the foreseeable future. I think motions and shifts and personnel changes are going to be part of the league going forward, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, I think it just gives the quarterbacks too much information that helps them once the ball is snapped. So coordinators are going to give them that opportunity. And uh, so, it's yeah, I would say all of that is true. Brady's going to have to expound on that and, and have it available no matter who's on the field, no matter what personnel, whether it's from 13 all the way down to 10, or for 22, or what have you. You're going to have to uh, – you're going to have all those guys motioning and shifting and playing different spots. And obviously how the roster morphs and changes between now and the time this team is at training camp in late July could impact Brady's tweaks and changes to the playbook as well, at least in terms of preferences. I mean, you have your voluminous playbook that has just about everything under the sun that you'd like to run, but depending on what your personnel and roster looks like come late July, that could dramatically impact what is getting installed early and often uh, in this offensive system as well. For example, you get an alpha dog receiver suddenly on the outside to pair with Diggs, and then you know, you've got Kincaid and Shakir inside. Well, that could change things precipitously. Um, so there are a lot of things that he probably has in mind right now but that could morph and change again by the time this team gets to training camp, which makes it all the more interesting. Got to take a break here, but we're taking your phone calls at 803-0550, The number to get on board is we're asking you, what stamp do you expect offensive coordinator Joe Brady to put on the Bills offense? Your phone calls next here on One Bills Live. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Steve Tasker with you, 803-0550. The number to get on board is we're asking you, what stamp do you expect offensive coordinator Joe Brady to put on this Bills offense next fall? Obviously, the roster figures to change, as it does every offseason, which could impact 
some of the things that happen in terms of the tweaks to the offense, but you saw him triaging the Bills offense for the second half of the season this past year. Now that he has full control of the direction that this thing heads, how do you think it will change going forward? 803-0550, the number to get on board, one 888 Got some open lines for you there. And we lead off with Darren up in Ottawa. What do you got for us, Darren? Hey, guys. Good to talk to you. First thing I want to say is I'm very disappointed you're on the Odyssey app because you can't get that in Canada. Mm. The only time I get to listen to you guys is when I'm driving in around Toronto. Gotcha. All right, well, we'll make my a note of that. Is, all right. My question is, Leslie Frazier, any uh, update on him if he's coming back to Buffalo or anywhere else in the league for that matter next year? He's done so, He's done a couple of uh, head coaching interviews, and I can't remember the, which team it was with uh, off the top of He did of a head, head coaching interview with the Chargers. Obviously, yeah. didn't get that job. And there was one other team he had a head coaching interview with. There were some teams that were interested in him as a defensive coordinator. He bypassed those to go for the head coaching jobs and may have cost himself an opportunity to be a D.C. again in this league. But it was clear when he was here he wanted to be a head coach again, as he was in Minnesota. But that didn't happen. And one quick note, Darren, we're being told you can try the Bills app to pull in our show. That should work for you uh, internationally. So maybe try that uh, the next time you're up closer to home in Ottawa. And thanks for the call. Uh, Yeah, nowhere in terms of a landing spot for Coach Frazier. We should also note, um, Brandon Bean mentioned this at his press conference last week, Leslie Frazier no longer under contract to the Bills. It was kind of like a one-year sabbatical and now no longer under contract. His contract has told, so he is a coaching free agent. Uh, To Mark in Jersey City next. What do you got for us, Mark? Uh, Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, One point about the game yesterday and then about what it means for the Bills. Um, they were the Ravens forgot who they were yesterday. They were they seemed very intent on trying to showcase Lamar as an MVP candidate, a guy who could win big in the playoffs against you know the guy. Then he he like you said he 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 just he came up short. That that interception was brutal. I mean the the strip sack gets lost because. They failed for it on that real fourth and short with with Pacheco, which is rare. I thought they were just going to walk in with that. I thought Kelsey might have gotten it on the previous uh, play, but it was yeah. It just and but you, you can't say that he's not a good passer. He's just an average passer. There's a reason why they manage the guy's passes. He doesn't even come close to throwing 500 passes a year in an era where guys throw 600. But when it comes to the Bills. I, the Bills have the only guy in this league. This is going to sound very homer. They have the only guy in this league that can go toe to toe with with Mahomes. Period. Over and out. End of story. They have the guy that can do that, and he's done it. He's done it in his gym, and he's had some very fluky things happen in the playoff game, the two playoff games just prior that have kept him from getting over the hump. Get him weapons. Run that guy out of the gym. That's it. Run him out of the gym. Get him weapons that are just going to, you know, there is no fluky play because the scoreboard dictates there won't be. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's a lot in there, but uh, here's the thing. You're right. I, I agree with you. I think Baltimore did get away from who they were or who they should have been or perhaps maybe not to, to that extent just saying who they needed to be yesterday to beat the Chiefs. Yeah, and they that's just the w- best way to say they it. Wouldn't, they didn't get there. They couldn't get into that mode. You're right. Um, and I'll say this, the Lamar – touchdown over the uh, the interception he threw over the middle in the end zone was brutal but he had another one dropped 
dead cold drop by a Kansas City defender as well. So, you know, there's a lot in those. Um, and, yes, Josh does go toe-to-toe with Pat Mahomes. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. But also Joe Burrow does as well. In fact, Joe Burrow has really good success against Pat Mahomes. Beat him in an AFC championship in his building. Josh has never done that. So there's at least two guys that can go toe-to-toe with him. And Josh, you know, has had his, you know, has had his success against Pat in the regular season. But, you know, and everybody will poo-poo that success because of the playoff success Pat's had against Josh. That's the way, that's the way it is in this business. But you're right. Um, those three quarterbacks, and I, I, I say this, despite the bad game they had yesterday, Lamar's got to go in that conversation with those quarterbacks at the top of the AFC. It's Pat, it's Josh, it's Joe, and it's Lamar. Joe's had some problems with injuries that the other three haven't, and Lamar has a little bit, but not the same extent. And, you know, this, you come back, and when they're in there, all four of those guys can go. But Pat is the best guy because for whatever reason, maybe it's his coach, maybe it's his tight end, maybe it's the vibe, who knows? Maybe it's something uh, unquantifiable. But there's a handful of guys, in, at least in the AFC, who are right there at the top, and it's must-see television whenever they play. Josh is certainly on that list. Yeah. I think where Lamar comes up short is throwing outside the numbers. I mean, how many times did he overthrow his receivers down the sideline on shot plays? I mean, he overthrew Beckham twice. He overthrew another receiver down the other sideline. He missed on throws where his receiver had to step on people. Like Josh in the divisional playoff was the victim of drops. I mean, two out of those three, he put on a button. The third one, Sherfield had to adjust to. It was a difficult ball, but he still had a chance to catch it in open space, not in tight coverage. And Josh was the victim of drops. Lamar was the victim of inaccuracy on shot plays yesterday. And it's, it's something that has been a consistent theme throughout his career. Throwing deep and outside the numbers is difficult yeah. for him to do on a consistent basis. I'll say this, too. You're right. Uh, get back to your original point. The Ravens lacked the ability or the will to be who they needed to be yesterday to beat the Chiefs. Yeah. We, I felt like they could have run the football effectively and better with Lamar, with Edwards, with Flowers, all those guys, and they didn't. They just didn't. They had 16 rushes the entire game. Eight of them from when, were from Lamar. So that means your running backs touch the ball eight on guys. carries eight, eight times. times. That's just – I mean, that's – forty. What did they have, 41 throws, 16 rushes? 37, 37 throws I mean, documented and 16 rushes. I, and that's more than two to one. And I understand you got to throw more in this league, but they were chasing a game they didn't need to chase. They were they, down 17-7 in the second quarter. You have plenty of time to still run the football. Plenty got, of time. Yeah, they've got, you know, they got sacked. He got sacked four times. Yeah. As well, defied did. logic. It really did. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm. I was a little disappointed in their inability to get out of a mindset that they obviously had going into that game. And it's not that. I, it's it's one thing to start trying to drop back and throw the football all over the yard. You know, if you get into one of those games, but it's another just to start handing it off and going to your run game whenever you want. It's all. That's always there. It's not like it's an enormous flip the switch and you got to ch- turn your game plan on its head. Yeah. Just, man. And, you know, I, I think Lamar's 
just unwillingness to pull it down and run when it was there, get some first downs, sustain some drives. Uh, yeah, right. That 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 slow start was they just never got out of that mode. Yeah. You know, first three and out, and they just felt like ugh, it took them forever to get find their rhythm. Let's go back to the phones and to Denny in Niagara Falls. What do you got for us, Denny? Hey, gentlemen, I agree with you completely, and I'm I'm just sick and tired of the media. Like all last week, I heard about how Lamar Jackson. MVPs. I would argue that even Allen had numbers this year for MVP. I mean, he had 50, including playoffs, combined touchdowns. I'm not even going to compare stats in the game because it's the only stat that matters is winning. But is he the more elusive runner than Allen? Yes. It doesn't necessarily make him a better runner. I actually think Allen knows when to run it, when to improvise. I mean, you've seen some of these backwards laterals. He's had. He's he's a more. And as far as I'm concerned, I think he's a better player, and he definitely throws the deep ball better. I mean, if you looked at last night's Detroit San Fran game, do you blame it on Goff for, for Reynolds dropping both of those passes? No. I, I'm just tired of hearing it. It's yeah. Mahomes. He's in the status all by himself. He's Brady. He's. I'm not saying he's Brady, but he's getting close, at least for this this decade. And then you got Allen. And then you can put in any other order anybody else you want, as far as I'm concerned. If if Buffalo had Baltimore's defense this year and their coaching, I mean, if you think of the three losses they had with the Jets, mm-hmm. Denver, and Philly, they could have been the ones hosting. You know, they would have been playing probably Houston in the first game. And then, who knows, maybe Baltimore does knock out KC in the divisional round, and then we got Baltimore or KC at home. And then, and then they have that extra week of rest, too, which definitely would have mattered this year with that defense that was decimated. So I appreciate you guys. I love hearing you guys. Your show is one of the best on there. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate yeah, that. And you're right. And it, we spoke about it earlier in the show. Think about it. Brock Purdy won the NFC Championship game as much with three timely rushes that were big plays as he did with his arm, which was he, he threw the ball really well. He well, threw again, the ball fantastic. It goes back to your point about the decision-making at the quarterback yeah. position. Brock Purdy is not the best runner if you're comparing him to Lamar or to Josh, but he's effective because of when he chooses to run. Yeah. I mean, Purdy, Purdy had, in the game, he had five rushes for 48 for an average of 9.6. I mean, that's right where you need to be, you know, five. Um, he kept we, drives we alive for about it. It's all about this quarterback stuff. It's a debate that is, that is hard because these guys are all so different. you got Brock Purdy who makes really a ton of good decisions and has the ability to make them, to execute them. you got Josh who you can make the argument makes – not as many perfect decisions, but has the ability to overcome bad decisions with the next play or turning a perfect defensive call into a touchdown for the offense. Right. Um, Josh can do that. Lamar, same kind of thing. Uh, his decision making yesterday, I thought, was his downfall, not yeah. you know his abilities. His detrimental effect. Yeah, that was it. And you know, of course, Pat Mahomes. I mean, that guy's a savant. I mean, that guy sees things nobody else does, and then can throw wherever he is. He can execute a throw from whatever platform there is to get it in the vicinity where he can be caught. Um, and then plus you, you put in um, you know, the, you know, a guy like Travis Kelsey who catches everything, who he trusts, um, and whose lights are on all the time. I mean, it's, it's a tough combination. Yeah. Got to take a break here, but what stamp do you expect offensive coordinator Joe Brady to put on the Bills' offense for next fall? we got uh, open lines for you at 803-0550. And we'll open with Kate in Rochester when we return here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio.
All right, back here on One Bills Live, Chris Brown, Steve Tasker with you. Going to get right back to the phones as we are asking you, what stamp do you expect offensive coordinator Joe Brady to put on the Bills offense for next fall? And leading off with Kate in Rochester. What do you got for us, Kate? Hey, Brownie. Hey, Steve. Great show. Uh, Really big diehard fan here, except I was traveling internationally on the 7th of January through I just got back home. And I have to say one thing first before I touch on uh, Joe Brady is this a hostile environment in Newark. I wore all my Bills paraphernalia. I was so looking forward to a go Bills. I got nothing. I saw one guy in a Josh Allen jersey far away at another gate. But other than that, I missed a lot of the playoff season. But I have a question for you. I think it was from your Thurman Thomas discussion. And I want to know, I want your analysis, a real summary again. What happened in the fourth quarter? Because there was some discussion about we made the wrong decisions on the play calling. And I'm very concerned that we don't have enough creativity and juice. And it sounds like it's a done deal with Joe Brady. And I'm kind of a think-out-of-the-box kind of girl. And we got to be more aggressive. And we really got to support Josh. And Josh needs as much support and help and creative things like I thought maybe we'd hire a stealth mentor for Josh like one of the old quarterbacks that he really is in touch with and pay him to coach him through whatever he needs to get done tell me what happened with Joe Brady's play calling in the Chiefs and and I think he'll be good but I also think I love Sean McDermott but Sean McDermott being a defense coach he's pulled it out of the box a lot he's got a lot of solid nature to him but I'll tell you the trip to London when I heard that their experts were telling them they could bank sleep and I know for a fact you can't and that's old news I think they've got old conservative input going on in the team and they need some fresh new creative stuff I'll let you have at it I want to believe in Joe Brady but I'm afraid we should have been we need to be more savvy against the teams we're playing while we're playing them and we all know we could have beat the Chiefs and I'm just getting caught up on all the commentary, but I just wanted your take on that. Thank okay. you. Yep. Thanks, no Kate. Thanks for thanks for calling. Yeah. Uh, going to the play calling because I'm I'm too far removed from. Yeah. It to I, I, the main issue with the play calling at the end of the game was down four or down three, twenty seven twenty four. Um, a lot of people had an issue with Josh going for the end zone there on second and nine which he did. He had Shakir come open on a post pattern uh, in the end zone and got hit as he threw the ball. So the ball ended up incomplete and about five yards short of the target because Josh got hit as he threw and also, as he told us after the game, did not reset his platform. So he kind of threw it flat-footed and got hit to boot, and the ball fell incomplete, harmlessly five yards shy of the target, which was Khalil Shakir. And There are a lot of people saying Diggs is running free underneath. Let's just get the first down, run more clock, et cetera, et cetera. And really, where Steve and I landed, because I'm pretty sure Steve shared this sentiment, the most important thing at the end of the game in what is probably or has a good chance to be your last possession is to score points. It's points over time on the clock. Sure, you would love to manage the clock and get it down as low as possible, leave Patrick Mahomes with a little time, but points are the priority. They always are. So going for the end zone and being aggressive there, I have no problem with that. Uh, it's just unfortunately he got hit as he threw the football. Um, and then he had to run to his right and throw it out of bounds on third and nine because quite simply nobody was open, 
and he had a pass rusher in pursuit, so he really didn't have an opportunity yeah, to run either to gain yards with his legs. And that's what made it a 44-yarder that was impossible, obviously impossible to make So at that point. So instead of a 30-yarder, it was a 43-yarder. It was a 44-yard attempt. He should have made it. Long. So, yeah, and he's I mean, been good from that distance for a so, long time. He just pushed it right. Um, but, yeah, if you get the – if you get the first down there instead of you got three more chances and it's a little, you know it's a little different end of the game yeah. a little different complexion and I wouldn't and I wouldn't get too wrapped up in not having a lot of faith in Joe Brady based on what you saw for the last nine yeah. games and the reason being as I've said before he was basically working with an instruction manage, manual in a toolbox that had been handed to him it wasn't his own tools and his own manual so give him an off season to incorporate some of the things that he believes offensively should work for this group, not to mention what could get added in the offseason, because I am confident that more weapons will be added to help Josh, to your point, Kate. And so hopefully it does look a whole lot better and is more productive. I'll say this too. Your offensive coordinator can make your quarterback look really good and vice versa. And the other is true as well. Your offensive coordinator can stifle a good quarterback and a quarterback can make the wrong throw and make the offensive coordinator look bad. Um, I think there's both of those things going on. Certainly Josh can overcome some deficient play calling at times. He can, he can overcome the fact that the defense has the perfect defense called on him and they, did, couldn't, they couldn't detect it before the snap and he turns it into a great play. Uh, I think when you have Josh trying to go for that end zone shot, you do have other options in that play that he could have gotten to that would have brought up a second and what, two, second and one, maybe even a first down. That's on Josh. That's not on on yeah. you know Joe Brady. So it's both those guys working together to try and accomplish something, and sometimes one of them has, has it right and the other one misses it, and vice versa. Um, so it's a – that's why that – man, it's tough to get it right. Yeah. Um, and that's why we're we're talking about today, and even in the after these two AFC and NFC championship games yesterday, it's the decision making of the quarterbacks that come down to it. And that you're cutting it really when you get down to that point in these games where you're saying, "Man, that quarter he just didn't make the right decision right here. Just he should have run it, or he should have thrown it, or he should you know." That's where you're you're playing at a really high level, a really high level, and you know that's where you you come down to drawing drawing the distinctions and just different decisions quarterbacks make. And that's where we're at today with all these quarterbacks in the divisional round and the championship round. It became down to decision-making, and and some guys made the right decisions that they were able to execute. Other guys made decisions that they were not able to execute. And you win and you lose based on it. Got to take a break here, but when we come back, hour number three will begin with pro football focus analyst Brad Spielberger going to help us a little bit with an early look at free agency, we know that Brandon Bean has already said this team is not going big game hunting with their current cap situation. What value could be out there on the free agent market? We'll take a cursory look with Brad Spielberger when we return. Here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health, it's Buffalo Bills Radio.
One Bills Live, presented by Kaleida Health. All right, hour number three here on Monday. Chris Brown, Steve Tasker with you, and pleased to be joined now by pro football analyst for Pro Football Focus and a guy that's gotten a jump on the uh, free agent market that uh, will hit everybody's palate for free agent transactions come March 13th when signings can officially happen. It's Brad Spielberger joining us. And, Brad, good to have you, first of all. Uh, Talk about getting an early jump on this, man. You've covered the gamut here on PFF.com. Not only position by position breakdown, a top 150 of free agency. Holy crap. Like, when did you get started on this? Thanksgiving? My God. Uh, actually, right around then, yeah. In uh, early November, started watching film. You know, you obviously have a pretty good idea of who's going to be up available at the top. It does get a little bit more interesting once you get into the 150 to 300 range. But, yeah, I wanted to get a very early jump on it. I know uh, Bills fans probably hoped they weren't thinking about this at all until mid-February. But, you know, only two teams left that, that aren't thinking about free agency in the draft. So, yeah, it's been, already been about three months of uh, watching film and, and looking at the data and getting ready for the offseason. One of the things as well is that, you know, we kind of get caught up in the moment. And certainly the the top defense, the, the top free agent in your mind is still playing. He's one of the Kansas City Chiefs um, and Chris Jones. And, and there's a little bit of that for everybody, I think. The, the guys that are still good enough to keep their teams in it are kind of the more, most coveted guys, not only for – the ability to play, but also playoff experience, Super Bowl experience, playing in the big moments uh, and shining through. What do you? Uh, what are some of the most notable guys you think will absolutely change teams this year that could make a huge difference for where they're going? If, if yeah, I think d- one big project. one. You're touching on the guys that were still playing. He was playing yesterday, and that's uh, Baltimore Ravens interior defender Justin Matabike. Yeah. I- I'm sure the Ravens are going to push very, very hard to bring him back, but they do have a lot of big roster, uh, big contracts ac- across their roster. Uh, he had maybe the most beneficial year that any player had in terms of boosting their value. You know, second team All Pro, set career highs in, in quarterback pressures, sacks, quarterback hits. His pass rush win rate almost doubled from prior years, and also always been very good against the run you see backside pursuit plays you see effort plays late in the shot clock from him on tape so he's a guy where i think he shows up and and changes the entire dynamic of your interior and you know i do think baltimore is going to push very hard to retain him but if he is that guy that makes it to the market i think we'll have a massive impact wherever he goes yeah and we've got a bills cap situation here that they've got to clean up first and you know brandon bean last week in addressing the media pretty much admitted that They will have to try to kick the can down the road a little bit. He never wants to overload himself in that situation, but he'll have to move some money into future years with some cost-prohibitive contracts. There are certainly players that are, you know, good candidates for extensions, like a Deion Dawkins, who's only 29, among others. Um, But the bottom line is, even after doing all that, they're going to have to be very cost-conscious as they venture into free agency this offseason. But from a sheer numbers standpoint... Eight of their 12 defensive linemen on the roster are free agents. From a sheer numbers standpoint, they're going to have to address that position in free agency as well as the draft. So I guess for for lack of a better term, what might be considered some good value players that maybe aren't signing in the first wave of free agency when the big money's getting thrown around that could make sense, you know, for the Bills come the third week of free agency perhaps, or even late in the second week. 
Yeah, and that honestly is how you should approach it, especially if you're already a good team that has marquee players at the premium position. So I would start first in-house. You know, I know he missed a lot of the season, but Daquan Jones was phenomenal the first month or so of this season. Actually led all interior defenders with a 21% pass rush win rate, which is like elite edge rusher type number. Uh, So see if you can bring him back. A good five tech can kick inside a little bit as well. Uh, Pretty good against the run. Obviously up there in age, so not going to break the bank like you're saying, but a very, very good football player. There's a couple guys maybe you poached from your division Andrew Van Ginkle stepped up in Miami when they lost Bradley Chubb and Jalen Phillips to injury unfortunately got hurt himself as well uh, at the very end of the year but expected to be back you know by minicamp and all those things and really really always been a very good run defender he's undersized but a good you know pursuit in space not really shedding blocks but just like knowing where to be good first step good, good instinct so Maybe not taking on blocks, but a good run defender in space, backside pursuits again, but really took a step this year in winning one-on-one matchups, getting home, not just because of all those guys I mentioned, um, but also because he himself kind of grew through the course of the year. Uh, A couple other names, I think Tyre Tart, but an interesting year in Tennessee, kind of pushed his way out, wasn't playing as much as he wanted to or being deployed how he wanted to, but goes to the Houston Texans as a waiver pickup, plays very, very good football down the stretch for them. He's a guy on the interior, as good of a run defender at that age right now as you're probably going to get on the open market. Big, physical, can win on the interior, good at you know stunts and, and, and twists and things like that to get a free rush at the quarterback. So those are a couple guys that I think, like you said, not going to be signing on March 13th, maybe March 30th, that really could make a difference for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and we always look at this as, wow, this is a chance for other some teams around the league, perhaps not Buffalo because they're kind of in this salary cap deficit right now. But this is a chance. You always think about, wow, some teams could get really good because they're, you go down, your, even your list of the top 150 is like, wow, there's, there's a ton of really notable players that are going to be free agents. So a lot of teams could get better. Now I'm going to ask you on the other end of it, what team, I mean, is there a team, because the Bills, like eight of their 12 defensive linemen are gone or not under contract. What team is going to be hurt? Maybe it is the Bills, worse than any other by the sheer attrition because of the free agents. Yeah, the Bills probably are on that list if I had to pick. They obviously have a lot of good players, even good rotational pieces. A.J. Epinesa took steps this year, uh, also a pending free agent. So I think they are certainly, unfortunately, uh, on that list. But I guess in good news, I think two other teams in the division. We talked about Miami. Christian Wilkins, also a possibility. Did not get an extension done. Miami has a bunch of huge contracts that they need to figure out um, going forward. Maybe he makes it to the market coming off again, a year where he just exploded as a pass rusher. Been one of the best best run defenders in the entire NFL, led the NFL in defensive stops against the run um, over the last couple seasons. So, And then a team that wasn't good, uh, the New England Patriots, quietly have a lot of important pieces. You know, Safety Kyle Duggar, tackle slash guard Michael Onwenu. You go down the list, Trent Brown at tackle, obviously a guy that misses time here and there, but a good player when he does play. Kendrick Bourne, probably their best wide receiver on the roster when healthy this year. They're, they're losing a lot of talent for a team that is picking third overall. Yeah, and then you know, for Buffalo, they're going to have to fill in places where they can probably use budgetary signings. Brandon Bean's been a big fan of the one-year contracts uh, to kind of mitigate long-range costs, and he's done that at running back. He's done that at linebacker. Uh, might be in a position to do that again, knowing those contracts are all turning over. Um, Ty Johnson was a player that was a pleasant surprise for them. As a matter of fact, he supplanted Latavius Murray towards the end of the year when Murray's legs kind of went on him as an age 33 running back, and Johnson offered far more explosion and speed at the position. 
Um, I would like to think he'd still be relatively affordable um, knowing he was playing a secondary role to James Cook. But, man, he'd be a good, you know, second part of a one-two punch. I think you really saw the faith they had in him, even in the playoffs, getting not only early down runs, but also, you know, we think of James Cook, especially once Joe Brady took over, start putting him in the slot more, lining him up out wide, you know, running choice routes over the middle, but also running legit, you know, routes down the sideline, not just wheel routes and really being used as a receiver. And even Ty Johnson started eating into some of those screen passes, quick outs, things of that nature. I agree with you. Fortunately for Buffalo, it's a loaded class at running back. So we know it's a tough position right now to get paid at. You know, when, when teams are thinking about Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, Tony Pollard, Austin Eckler, your old pal Zach Moss, like you go on the list of guys that had very good seasons, you know, he is on there. Jonathan, he had a strong end to the season. But, yeah, I don't think you're breaking the bank there. What about uh, at wide receiver, the Bills, you know, we're, Brownie and I, Brownie's going off. He says, listen, they're going to get two wide receivers in the first three rounds, no matter what. It's, it's That's what I want them chisel, to do. Chisel it in stone. But this is, you know, this is a position that has really blossomed over the last four or five years. The draft has been thick at the top with really good guys who come right in and, and, and uh, contribute right away to really good teams. And it seems to be happening every year. And now, of course, with free agency, now you've got wideouts on the free agent market. T. Higgins, to be to name one. Um, what, give us a name. Now you, you've already said too that some guys have had you know glow up of a, a glow up of a year. Who's about to have a glow up of a year as a free agent that a team like Buffalo with no cap space you can get a guy for a bargain, but this is a guy that's got an upside that still has yet to be realized. Yeah, so the draft is loaded, so I think it's a pretty sound strategy there, too. And I think this is quietly, maybe not quietly, like maybe the biggest need on this team. Defensive line, of course, but, you know, more weapons for Josh Allen to throw the ball to. So I would say on the higher end, when you mention the one-year contract, the name that jumps out to me is Marquise Brown in Arizona, who missed some time the last couple of years, but when you watch him, still has wiggle, can create separation, a good hands catcher, and, and solid for his size, taking hits over the middle on intermediate crossers and, and, and you know corner routes to the sideline where he gets hit and still holds on to the football. Hasn't been perfect, hasn't been clean, but still a very, very good football player in my eyes. Another one for me is Darnell Mooney in Chicago. Dealt with injury this year. Really had a down year by his standards. Could never get on the same page with Justin Fields, which is you know ironic because he had a thousand yards as a second year player when Fields was a rookie. But just things didn't line up for him. I think he makes it to the market. I think it's a huge buy low. Like I think he is a number two, maybe even you know number three receiver. But a guy in a good offense that I think could pop up and have a thousand yards kind of out of nowhere. So you know, those are the more I would say higher end names. But there's other guys too. Like we saw Noah Brown in Houston this year have a great season. Can play in the slot. Can play out wide was good in Dallas, was good in Houston. Nick Westbrook-Akine brings kind of that downfield field stretcher, depending on what happens with Gabe Davis. You know, a guy in Tennessee that can run block very well, is not going to complain if he gets two targets a game, and can make some of those you know 30-yard catches downfield uh, at key moments. And then the safety position in the secondary at large is going to be interesting for Buffalo because you could have players that have been a found foundational pieces, you know, in the McDermott era, aging out. We don't know what the future of Micah Hyde's career is going to be, whether he's just going to call it or whether he's going to try to still play. So that's up in the air at age 33. Uh, Jordan Poyer could become a cap casualty if they're really up against it. And you have Taylor Rapp, who's a free agent, but I think showed some things and is only 26 years old. My question to you, though, Brad, is we saw how – supply far out outpaced demand at the safety position last year where it was basically 
Jesse Bates got his, and not too many other guys did. They had to take less money, Jordan Poyer being one of those examples last offseason, and he comes back to the Bills when I don't think anybody thought he would. Do you see a similar pool in terms of depth of supply at the safety position again this offseason, and could that create value that the Bills can take advantage of there? No doubt about it. It's a bit of a trend now going back a bunch of years. You know, I think outside of the difference-making guys that can come down in the box and make plays or like a Jesse Bates can get you four or five interceptions a year making great plays, good ball skills, there are a lot of very quality, you know, starting caliber safeties that still reach the market, probably want to get more than, than they ultimately signed for and is no different this year. So, I mean, I could rattle off 10 names here, but, you know, Mike Edwards in Kansas City, they've been rotating a lot of safeties. They play some, you know, big nickel, big dime type packages. He's been that third safety always makes plays on the ball his like interceptions per snap played as a fake stat i'm making up on the fly here but gotta be one of the highest in the nfl the last couple years he's an interesting talent i think deshaun elliott in the division had a very good year in miami another guy that you put on the back end i think would pair well if poyer does stay as more of your box hook curl defender and you have that the reliable guy on the back end Jordan Whitehead, more of a, a diverse skill set, can be that deep third free safety, can also come down to the box, good against the run, you know, runs the alley, not afraid to get physical, so maybe a more of a mix-and-match skill set. One more name I'll throw out, but we could sit here and talk about safeties all day, is Julian Blackman um, with the Indianapolis Colts, who I just find is a fascinating profile because his first couple of years, he was almost always that deep third, Gus Bradley, cover three safety. This year, they brought him down. He put about 700 snaps in the box, had a bunch of you know highlight plays, great interception interceptions, pass breakups. Um, it was more physical than we thought. And what I love about him, too, is a former college cornerback. You see that on film. They put him in the slot a little bit. He can mirror pretty well for a safety. can kind of add some more diversity to your back end. And only 25 years old, and he yeah. played almost 1,000 snaps last year. Yeah. Who's not going to get paid this year besides Brownie and me? <laughs> I mean, I can imagine because you know you see guys yeah, me, like no, uh, yeah, you see guys like like Odell Beckham had fifteen million dollar one year contract with Baltimore. Um, he didn't live up to it. He did, yeah, and and did not get that kind of have that kind of season. What what are your thoughts on some of the guys that we may be seeing some notable names on the decline? Yeah, it's a, it's a good shout. So it, it always is going to happen. Obviously, age is a factor. You know. Kevin Ridley had about 140 targets this year, only hauled in about 57% of them, had a bunch of drops. I, I do think he got better as the season went on. The drops went way down. He, he was creating more separation against man coverage. But I think the thought there initially was he's going to come in and still be like an X, like, you know, up against the up on the line of scrimmage receiver. I think he's more of a move Z type guy now. And you create free releases for him. He's still a good athlete, can catch the ball downfield, but he'll get paid. I just don't think he's going to get that monster payday that maybe he he was hoping for once he came back into the fold. So he's one there. Otherwise, though, I think it's pretty standard, right? You're going to have the top of market guys, and then the market's going to kind of shrink for that middle tier. Um, but he's one where he'll get a deal. I just don't think it's going to be a great deal. Yeah. Right. I'd probably put Ryan Tannehill in that category, too. He's probably going to become a backup quarterback in this league unless there's some team that is yeah. supremely desperate. Think, he's not making 29 and a half ask, next yeah, year. Yeah, I'm going to ask you, though, is there a team like, like a Seattle Seahawks who could use a Ryan Tannehill, or if maybe a Ryan Tannehill goes to one of the other AFC South teams and – I mean, he's not going to go play for C.J. Stroud or maybe not Anthony Richardson uh, or one of the other teams in the AFC where he can either be a backup or be a mentor to one of the young guys coming out. I mean, this quarterback draft is coming up, and maybe there's a team out there that doesn't want to throw one of those guys to the wolves because their roster isn't up to it. 
Yeah, there are, maybe fortunately for him, a bunch of teams. I do think it's more of a bridge-type deal now, like an Andy Dalton taking two years, $10 million to go to Carolina, for example. But you look at the draft, right? You have Minnesota picking at 11. If they don't bring back Kirk Cousins, the Raiders are at 13. The Broncos are at 14. Like, teams that I don't think are going to risk, you know, just not having an answer there, not going the commander's route and kind of just seeing what they have. But say, hey, let's bring in a high-floor starting guy that can be a bridge to a rookie pick or maybe even just starts for a year and we draft next year. He'll have options but but i agree he's he's not making a 27 million dollar salary in 2024 yeah right brad thanks for uh helping us take a, a first look at the free agent market that will be coming down the pike here before we know it we appreciate you getting us schooled up on that we'll catch up with you down the line here in the offseason sounds great thank you guys thanks, All right, brad. That's brad spielberger pro football focused free agent analyst he's cut it left right and center as you heard him say he got started on this in november because i was like how do you have wow. A list this comprehensive already. We're still a month away, more than a month away from, like six weeks away from the free agent market opening up. So it'll be interesting to see uh, who actually is available by the time we get there. We got prospective free agents out the wazoo, but some of these guys may re-sign with their current clubs and never make it uh, to the market. We'll just have to wait and see on that. We want to get back to the phones at 803-0550, The number to get on board is we're asking you, what stamp do you expect? Offensive coordinator Joe Brady to put on the Bills' offense next fall now that he is the full-time guy. We go to Judy in Buffalo next. What do you got for us, Judy? <clears throat> well, I hope he has some impact. This is a man who uh, experienced Burrow, Chase, and Jefferson at LSU. I don't think he was the head coach or anything, but he knew what what it takes to win. We have the quarterback. We do not have the receivers. I don't see anybody in free agency. I know maybe, maybe we'll be lucky and get somebody in the first round, but I'm hoping he can bring bring his acumen to get us somebody. Uh, I think part of the problem with Dayball was they never listened to him when he said he needed help on the offense. Uh, you know, Getting back to Burl, I think Burl and his three receivers, if he can keep them, are a bigger threat to us than Kansas City. So I hope Joe Brady can make some sort of impact on the draft. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good one. I I hear what you're saying, Judy, but I, I'll, I, it's not. It's my understanding that's not how it works. Um, the he'll gen- have input in meetings. Of course, he'll have a voice in the room. Uh, about which guy he likes better than whatever guy, but he will not be able to say, you know, I mean, he can. He can jump up on the table, pound the table for a guy, but if they're not taking a person at that position, they don't want to hear it. Um, the Here's how it usually works in the NFL. The head coach chooses who plays on Sunday, chooses the coaching staff, chooses, you know, who's up and down and active and inactive. He does that with the help of his staff and all of that and all of the conversation that goes on in there. But the 53 guys that he chooses from are picked solely by the general manager, but in this case, Brandon Bean. Brandon drafts, he assembles the, the, the uh, players, he assembles the roster, he pays the guys, decides what they're going to pay, what they're going to make, and then he gives all of those guys to Sean McDermott and Sean gets to choose who plays and who doesn't and game plan and all that and with the kind of offense and the kind of defense he's going to run from the 53 that he gets from Brandon Bean. Now, they obviously have really intimate conversations about, listen, I need this kind of guy. I need that kind of guy. And Brandon will say, listen, do you like this guy or that guy? And Sean can say, I like that guy over that, you know, that kind of stuff. All those conversations are had constantly and ongoing. 
but the voice in the room that matters behind Terry Bagula is Brandon Bean. He's the guy that accumulates it. He's the guy that listens to the scouting staff, the pro scouts, the college scouts who come in and say, listen, this guy, this guy, this guy is this, this guy is that. And he's done homework himself to make his own opinions. Right, and he watches film too, and he has meetings with all the scouts say, why do you think this about this guy? He goes, well, look, come here, I'll show you. And they'll watch film together and say, look at this. See this right here? He does this all the time. This is the kind of guy we want. This is who we all those conversations happen. So Joe Brady, is he can draw plays up in the dirt. He can put them in formations and all this creative stuff and all the X's and O's you want. But he is only – he is a third-tier voice in draft room. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the way that works. Um, so his – he's going to basically get handed the grocery list – and he's got to make a recipe that works. Yeah. I mean, most – They hand him the groceries. Most coaching staffs will get an opportunity within a month of the draft to review tape of specific prospects that the, the scouting department and the personnel department will hand them to get opinions and write-ups on a handful of players that they may be targeting at specific positions. So Joe Brady is the O.C., may get three quarterbacks to look at, six to eight receivers to look at, two to three tight ends, offensive linemen, running backs, etc. And they'll tell Joe, hey, give us your thoughts on these 12 to 15 players that we like a lot. We'd like to get your opinion on how you might be able to incorporate them into your offensive system. And if the, I, if the I's get dotted and the T's get crossed and it all looks good, well, that might move a guy up the board a couple of spots because not only does our scouting department like him, but our coaching staff thinks he would work too. That's where it carries the most weight from a coaching perspective. That's where they can exert their influence and put a stamp on a guy and say, yep, that's our guy. He checks box A, box B, and box C. He checks our personnel box. He checks our coaching box. And he, you know, he checks our teammate box with other players on the roster, that kind of stuff. Um, that's the influence that Brady would have as an OC on the draft process. As for T. Higgins winding up back in Cincinnati, I don't think you have to worry, Judy. I don't think it's going to happen, and and for this reason mainly. T. Higgins is one is going to be one of the most sought-after receivers on the open market. There are probably about seven to ten teams that think he could be a number one receiver on their squad, and they may pay him accordingly. That kid's going to make upwards of $20 million a season, maybe even more. Um Bengals can't pay that because guess who they have to pay next year? Jamar Chase. And they would probably keep Chase over Higgins if they had a gun held to their head. So I don't think they're paying T. Higgins open market money. So Higgins is going to go out on the open market and probably sign elsewhere. Um, And that's going to probably force Cincinnati to also look in the draft for talent to fill that void. So there are going to be a lot of teams that can't pay veteran receivers big-time money, and will have to look in the draft to do so. The Bills are one of those teams because of their cap situation. The Bengals are one of those teams because they have to save their money for next year when they're going to have to probably pay Jamar Chase $30 million a year. So I don't see them re-signing Higgins. So hopefully that puts a smile on your face, Judy, knowing that uh, he's probably not going to be back there and present the and, – and also Tyler Boyd's a free agent too, their slot receiver, and he may not be back either. He's a little older. Maybe they can afford to keep him in the fold. We'll see. But, yeah, that trio of receivers, 
not going to exist anymore in Cincinnati as right. we currently know it. Got to take a break here. We're going to crack open the tweet sheet, though, when we return. Want to get your thoughts over there on what stamp you expect Joe Brady to put on the Bills' offense this fall now that he is the full-time offensive coordinator. Tweet sheet when we get back, but we're taking your phone calls as well here on One Bills Live, presented by Collada Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Asking you what stamp you expect Joe Brady to put on the offense this fall now that he's been named full-time offensive coordinator. Congrats to him, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Did a nice job down the stretch there and got rewarded with the full-time position. So happy for him. And I don't know if people realize this. He is a young coordinator in this league. He's 35 years old, um, or he will be turning 35 here very soon if he hasn't already. I thought he had a birthday early in the year. I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, it's... Well, young guy, and he relates very well to the players. You heard Coach McDermott mention that. Um, the the thing about it is, and you always think about this. We've all come to because we think about all this stuff all the time. Brownie and I too. You know, depending on the success he has with Josh Allen, how this team goes in the next few years, he's gonna he's gonna be doing head coaching interviews. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's just the way it works. Um, that's what. That's why I don't have a problem if Sean McDermott keeps the play calling duties on the defensive side, just like Andy Reid keeps them in Kansas City. You're not going to get your play caller poached because he's the head coach. You're not, gonna, you know what I mean, defensively or yeah. off, you know, off, whichever the case may be. Uh, Buffalo's with Josh. Josh is going to make these guys look really good, and you know, <laughs> you're going to lose them. Dayball's gone. Yeah. And that you know, so that's that's going to be it. So this guy is only seven years older than Josh, though. I mean, think about that. That's good, though. You can. Uh, that's what I'm saying. It is yeah. good because you can relate better to the players when you're pretty close in age to them. Um, and coming from the college game, you know, with his time at LSU, I think helps him stay cutting edge as well. Let's go to the tweet sheet, though. Tweet sheet brought to you by Corrigan Moving Systems, the official equipment moving company of the Buffalo Bills. To get some thoughts over there on the stamp you expect Joe Brady to put on the offense this fall. And Alex says, his own. People don't realize he was stuck within the constraints of Dorsey's offense. Yeah, I've tried to make that point, you know, saying he had to triage the offense over the last nine games. Now he gets to kind of draw up some of his own ideas that he thinks would fit, you know, the talent on this offense as well. So I do expect change. But as Steve and I were discussing today, I think for continuity's sake, he'll – continuity sake he'll probably keep a lot of the terminology the same even though some of his play calling preferences and concepts might change the look of the offense yeah you yeah you know it's total totally a creative exercise and you can you can evolve quicker when everybody already knows the words to the language and that's so he'll he'll do that as much as he can but he'll probably you know i that's what happens when you try a new idea. You got to give that idea a name so they can call it in a huddle, right? So you got to come up with the new words. And it used to be kind of a fun exercise. Part of it was back in the day, you'd you'd have signals, and we would signal in place from the sidelines by hand, and we would always have this conversation with the wideouts, running backs, and 
tight ends and quarterbacks, like what's this what's this signal going to be for calf and and cow, and what's it going to be for you know right and left, all this stuff, you know, strong weak. You know, you had all these words that described routes. What's it going to look like? What's the signal for it? So it's always a fun thing. And that's part of the fun of putting in a game plan, too. And and I remember we had uh, Don Shula. I mean, I spoke to him. And, you know, that's part of why he was able to coach for long. He, he loved the creativity of it, going yeah. in and watching films. Hey, let's try this on these guys. That kind of – it's that's the fun part about the whole the whole shooting match is that these guys get to come up with their own ideas, put them into practice with guys they love and respect who are on inboard with them, and say, let's go see if we can make it work. It's, it's re, that's, that's why these guys get hooked on this job. You oh, know? yeah. They, they, it's a lifestyle, man. It's, there's a lot in it, and it's a lot of fun. Amy on the tweet sheet says, learning how to scheme digs open. This was often a criticism um, when the offense sputtered that, it was hard for receivers to get separation. And I remember a few write-ups on the critiques of the Bills offense saying nine out of ten times receivers had to win on their own. So they had to run a perfect route to get proper separation to be available for their quarterback under Dorsey. And the thought was, well, your coordinator has to help in that regard too, and maybe scheme players open. We see, we see players in the Dolphins scheme running open all the time. Now, part of that is because Tyreek is the fastest player on the planet, um, yeah. but they do have other people running free quite often, and it's usually because they're playing off of all the attention on Tyreek. But there are coordinators who can scheme receivers open, even if they're not great separators. In their skill set. Yeah, and it's not easy. I mean, defenses are designed not to be able to do that, right? But some guys are good at it. I, I think one of the, the the transitions you have to make when you go from a player to a coach is what kind of player were you? Were you an, were you an overcoming player? Were you a, a high achiever? Overachiever. Yeah. An overachiever? Or were you a gifted guy? And where did you go to school? Did you go to school at LSU where you had – Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Justin Jefferson as your wideouts, and you just sit out there and go run these routes, and they're always open <laughs> because, like I so, always say, they're playing against dental students, right? So, or were you playing at you know Princeton or Cornell or one of the Ivy League schools or UB or wherever, and you got to you got to come up with something to get these guys up because none of them can run routes, yeah, right. Um, that all goes into the experience of coordinators and stuff and how they think about offense. You can't just go out there and say, run an out route and get open. You know, you got if you give the guy a little half motion, it, it changes things. And, and coordinators who understand that, it really goes a long way towards having your offense take another step. Um, and where they come from has to do with what they think is possible. TD Mack on the tweet sheet says, marry the run and pass concepts better and use play action more. Yeah, we've heard we heard that from Dan Orlovsky, who was our weekly visitor, the ESPN NFL analyst, when Dorsey was still the coordinator. It was his opinion that the Bills could be one of the best play action teams in the league based on what Josh Allen can do with his arm in terms of threatening a defense. And I would think going into next season, Steve, with the with the evidence that the Bills put on tape in the second half of the season that they can run the football, 
I would think that would hold a lot more water going forward for them yeah. as a concept they could turn to and utilize effectively. I would agree with that. Their their willingness and ability to run um, the ball effectively, is, you know, teams got to kind of dive into the line of scrimmage defensively. Got to respect they, it. Yeah, because they think, man, they are going to hand it to James Cook or they are going to hand it to Latavius Murray. You know, they we got to we got to bear up and stop this, and then all of a sudden Josh pulls it out, steps back, and and you got guys running past you. Now, um, the quality of the guys running past the defense is is going to change this year, uh, or at least the names are going to change this year. But it does help, I think. Um, and Josh's ability to run it is and is is an added dimension to that. So if you know if it's a RPO. And Josh either hands it off or throws it. And what are they going to do when not he doesn't hand it off and he doesn't throw it either? And he takes off around the end, and you're not even you have nobody accounting for that. Yeah, oh, it's it's just one more option, one more level of difficulty for a defense to think and have about a tenth of a second to make the right decision. Right, um, TPJW on the tweet sheet says lots of motion formations and routes with yak possibilities. The yards after catch thing is interesting because from what we heard from the players in the first half of the season, Ken Dorsey was banging the yards after catch drum time and again. It was beaten into the players' heads that we need more yards after the catch, more yards after the catch, because they had ranked near the bottom of the league in that category for several seasons under Dayball and Dorsey. Uh, and, And Steve has mentioned this, that you know, Josh is more of a put-it-on-you quarterback. He's not a guy that's going to lead you into space. He's going to nail you between the numbers. Um, although I think Josh got a little bit better at that this season, in my opinion, from some of the examples we saw over the course of the year. Um, that num- They were top five in yards after catch under Dorsey. The number dropped off under Brady, and they finished, I want to say, 13th in the league in yards after the catch. The reason why was because they ran the ball so much. They just had fewer opportunities per game because they were running the ball 35 times a game with Josh and Cook and the lot. Um, But yeah, I I could see that being in there. I do think we're going to see a lot of formations. I do think we're going to see a lot of motion, which we already saw under Brady. Uh, The route concepts will be interesting going forward. And if they lend themselves to yards after catch opportunities, that's, that's what we're waiting to see. Right. Bartman on the tweet sheet says to quote Jonathan Gannon, Explosives, explosives. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I like the, the sound you... effects from Bartman. That even back when, when I played, Teddy Marchabrota used to say, guys, we're going to win games because we're going to play good football and hit the big play. Um, that's what you do. You, you play good, solid football, and you start to make hay with a four-yard, four-and-a-half, six-yard run. And the the short pass that they got to make a good tackle or it's going to break off, and then you slip one in behind them and they get caught, or you get them, you get them caught, a, you know, over committing to a play that you're not running, um, and you snap off a big one. That's that's how football is in the NFL. These I get it. These 17 play drives are few and far between, but you, it's rare that you don't see a eight or 10 play drive that doesn't have an explosive play in it. You know, a twenty-five, a thirty-yarder, right? So you, you've got to find a way to manufacture those. And I, I was telling my, I was watching the games yesterday. The reason those games were like that yesterday, particularly the Baltimore Kansas City game, you look at it. 
the every time the first defender that went to the football tackled it. Nobody busted a tackle. And if they did, it was an aberration. It was a game where the first defender to the ball had the ball on the ground. That's how tough – that's why it's tough to play – that's why it's tough to score points on those teams. And I'll just say, in defense of Sean McDermott with respect to explosives, he laid it out at his season-ending press conference last week. He basically said, look, I know that I am sometimes painted as a conservative coach, but I have always believed that explosives are necessary in your offense if you want to score points. There is a direct correlation – to drives ending in points if you have at least one explosive play on that drive. He said he's well aware of it. He wants it incorporated more into the offense, which gives me hope, Steve, (laughs) that they will add a field stretcher with explosive play capabilities. I know that Gabe Davis has filled that role for them. To me, I don't feel like he fills it consistently enough. And when you have seven games in which you have one catch or no catches, it's evidence to me that you have to try to do better than that going forward, and hopefully they find that in the draft at a lower cost as well. Got to take a break here. Some final thoughts on the tweet sheet when we return on One Bills Live. Stay tuned. All right, J.T. Shrek on the tweet sheet says, beef the line, add a legit weapon, a wide receiver, and innovate the passing game to compete with top defenses. Innovate is a general term. It could take on any kind of complexion. So I guess we'll leave it open to interpretation. Usually innovation is coincides with a personnel change. Uh, the way the Dolphins innovated with that jet motion this year, the quick yep. motion before the snap. Yeah, late motion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, teams going with two tight ends, all that stuff. It, it There's a change in personnel that takes advantage of the innovation that nobody else could see. That's, yeah. We'll see if that happens. Josh on the tweet sheet says he needs to work with Josh on stepping up into the pocket to buy time and create more mismatches in the slot with Diggs and Kincaid. Josh has to work on his progression and stepping up to make himself better. Mahomes is incredible at these two things, and it makes him who he is. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Josh is right there. Um, Mahomes might be a more consistent decision maker, um, but Josh is right there, and hopefully Joe Brady accentuates some of those things with the changes. Yeah, I mean, they don't have to you know, transform Josh. You know, he'll be all right. That's it for us today. Steve and I back here tomorrow with another three-hour edition. We'll see you at noon.